At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, are you still looking for a lightweight and comfortable option to fit your hunting style? Well, look no further than Tethered's Phantom Saddle. It's extremely comfortable and extremely adjustable to fit exactly the way you want to hunt. I think my favorite features of this new saddle are the comfort channels, which is where the bridge kind of locks into the saddle. There's no more kind of fidgeting, moving your saddle around to try to find the right spot and reduce hip pinch. This just kind of locks in exactly where it's supposed to be. It's an extremely comfortable sit. The other uh, option or aspect of the saddle that I really like is the utility bridge. Oftentimes you're in a tree putting your tether up and you have a branch in the way and so you're not at the right height. And it changes the angle of your bridge, which changes your comfort. Well, there's a utility bridge now that the Phantom has to where you can adjust that. So no more does it matter where exactly your tether height is as you can adjust that length of your bridge uh, with the utility bridge itself. I think the other thing that helped me make the adjustment two years ago-ish when I transitioned to saddle hunting was the Predator platform. If you're coming from a tree stand, a little bit of familiarity with having a platform uh, went a long way in just making me comfortable with my overall setups. The Predator platform might be something you want to look into. If you're interested and you're still just kind of on the fence, you can go to tetherednation.com and be sure to check out all their saddle setups that they have available, the Phantom and the Mantis, and see which one might be right for you. They also just released recently a new Sishauler ES 2.0. Uh, these have some built-in pockets to keep some of your smaller items uh, compartmentalized like s beaners and so forth which is really nice keeps them from falling out in the timber when you're pulling out your tether or your uh, or your lineman's rope and that's usually what i'm keeping in mind so head to tetherednation.com and check out all of tethered's gear the first thing i do in the morning before a hunt before a scout or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee and i'm sure most of you out there listening are the same Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number 195. Today, I'm talking with my buddies from Exodus Trail Cameras, so stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. We're going to make this up front really quick today for a couple reasons. One is 
Uh, this podcast is kind of a long podcast, not going to lie. Uh, so want to just kind of jump into the, to the meat and potatoes of the, uh, of the podcast itself. But, it, but two, secondarily, the hunting season for me is approaching quickly. It, it is on Saturday and I'm doing some kind of final, final last minute prep things um, just to kind of get everything ready uh, to rock and roll for Saturday so I can uh, make my first hunt of the year. So that's, uh, so I just have a few kind of odds and ends to kind of top, nothing major, Oh, actually, I shouldn't say nothing major. The first thing I, uh, you know, I'll make mention of is uh, I was really trying to avoid shooting a different bow this year. Um, and I know I mentioned in a previous podcast that I wasn't changing any, any of that stuff. And I know in a previous podcast, you know, I was at, down at, you know, Greg Litzinger's and we shot my bow in and got it all kind of, you know, dialed in and so forth. Um, you know, but truth be told, like, I, I think I even mentioned in that podcast, we had that rest I had on that bow, I had rebuilt three different times. And just kind of was having a little bit of trouble getting it to be completely tuned. Like it wouldn't completely paper tune, so we ended up having to walk back tune it, and you know, which was shooting field points just fine. And so whenever I threw some some broadheads on it and stuff, um, we knew it wasn't hundred uh, percent paper tuned. It just it just wasn't. So we the the rest wouldn't move for any further. It was the only rest I had at the moment, so I didn't have a different one um, on me to kind of try. The other thing was with this particular bow, it's like I've I tried a couple different rests at different times and just couldn't get them to fit for whatever reason. Um, and so I was kind of struggling with that even, you know, last year whenever I set it up originally. Um, so it was just kind of a combination of things. And so when I brought it home and started, you know, broadhead tuning and stuff like that, it was just not it was just not working out. Um, and then it got into that kind of weird area where you start to doubt whether or not, you know, whenever you um when you release an arrow and it doesn't land where you want it to land, you then start to second guess, like, was it me? Was it the bow? Like, which, which, which was it? You know, cause then there's so many variables now that are at play. You aren't sure what things need to be tweaked. Um, and I know that it, just knowing myself that that would eventually start to creep in. And then I, it was going to be I'm trying to figure out how to say it. I'll just put it this way. It'd be, it'd be more challenging for me to kind of keep my form technique and all the things that I've learned over the course of the years to, to shoot accurately and consistently because I'm going to try to start to compensate. And I didn't want to do that. And it wasn't like I would do it consciously. It's just subconsciously I would start to make some slight changes in how I'm holding things or how I'm, you know, whatever the case is to try to compensate for trying to get my arrow to land where I want it to land. So, so with that, you know, in last year I had no, no problems or I shouldn't say no problems, but you know, I, I didn't have as many visible problems, I guess I should say. And then the previous year I was shooting a different bow by the same company and that bow shot fine. Um, and so just to kind of take all the guesswork out, I had been thinking about getting a different bow. You know, of course I wanted to do it earlier this, uh, this spring or this winter. Um, and then because the pandemic hit and I just couldn't, there wasn't a whole lot of travel and stores weren't open. So I didn't get a chance to go shoot and try new bows. And so I just kind of backburnered it and was like, you know what, I'll just wait, you know, and I'll get something probably next year. And, uh, but this kind of popped up and so I needed to kind of address it. So I went and shot some bows, um, this past week and ended up picking up a new bow. And so I've basically been spending, you know, a, a, a lot of time in the backyard, getting everything dialed in, getting my sight tape dialed in, um, just getting comfortable with the, the new bow. The nice thing is, is it's a great, uh, it's a great shooter. Um, and so it really didn't take me long to, to, to start, you know, dropping arrows where I wanted to drop them. And then the beauty of it was as soon as I threw broadheads on and flung a couple arrows, they were landing right where my field points were landing at 35, like 30 and 35 yards. Um, I shot out to 40 yards and I was, I was good there too, but I'm really not going to take a shot any further than 30 to 35 yards. And that would even be like, 
probably kind of extreme for me um, in the whitetail woods because I usually, you know, the last handful of deer that I've killed haven't been, you know, a, a shot further than 22 yards, I don't think. Um, so with that, you know, I had a lot of scrambling to kind of do to try to get this bow set up and dialed in and, and ready to roll. So the good news is, is it's ready to go and I'm confident in it. And I feel good. Um, but that was just kind of like a last minute hair pulling out exercise that, that I, that I went through. Um, and then other than that, man, you know, that's everything else is kind of wrapped up and ready to go. I, I went out today and, um, and took the, the kayak for a maiden voyage. I got the, the, the trolling motor kind of set up on it and stuff like that. And so I wanted to take it out and just kind of do a test run. And there was one camera that was in an area that I don't really plan to hunt. Cause there hasn't really been much there. It's, I'd maybe slip in and try to kill a doe out of this area. Um, and so I, so I took the kayak in there and just checked that camera cause I was going to be nearby and then just kind of made a, made a lap through this particular piece of water. And, um, and it, and it performed great. Um, you know, had to get used to, you know, quickly steering the opposite direction to go the, the way you want to go and stuff like that, which was a little bit, you know, took a second to get used to, but you know, it, it motors pretty good, um, beats, uh, beats paddling. And it's not that I'm, 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 uh, you know, afraid to paddle or <laughs> not afraid to paddle, but it's, you know, I'm in plenty of good enough shape to, to, to do some paddling, but what I haven't figured out yet. So if anyone out there has any tips, I haven't figured out yet how to not get wet when I paddle. And so early season, it's not going to be such a big deal. Um, as uh, rut hits, you get into late October, into November, and you're using the boat and you're paddling and you're getting wet. Kind of a little bit of a different story uh, in terms of the comfort of your hunt after you get out of your kayak. So that was really the reason for getting the the the, the motor was um, was just to try to keep my to keep myself dry. So with that, there's one piece of information that I wanted to pass along to you guys, and it's not uh, it's not an ad or anything like that. It's really just uh, more of a heads up that uh you know the folks over at onyx have and i i didn't even really realize this or maybe i did hear about it and kind of forgot but a, a buddy of mine um uh, sent me a note and let me and, and let me know that you know they've been doing this you know landlocked report that they that they have that, that that goes out and i think they did one previously that released i want to say like august 4th and that one was focused on public lands that are landlocked that don't have any access to them um you know, and I think that was in the, that was in the mid, in the Midwest, if I'm not mistaken. So the cool thing is, is for us here in the mid Atlantic, you know, the, the, the Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, New York area, they're actually doing one now, uh, for, for our area and kind of going through and using the tools that they have, you know, the, the, the information they have at their disposal to find these pieces of land, you know, public land that's surrounded by private that you can't get access to. They're actually partnering with the TRCP to do this. And they put out this report to kind of bring to light these places that should be accessible, but are not. And there's a bunch of different ways they can try to, you know, create access. And most of the time, I think the best way to do it, or at least what I've read is that they partner with like the adjacent, you know, private landowners and, you know, and get some legal things working to where you can get some easements and some access in, in certain areas and stuff like that. Some of this land is actually even, you know, landlocked that has water access. And just because it has water access doesn't mean you can necessarily boat to it or whatever. It might be swampy and not be able to be able to be gotten to. Otherwise, you know, beyond walking. And so, you know, for all intents and purposes, there really is no access in, in those places. So if you head to their website to, to onyx.com uh, or onyxhunt.com, uh, there's a tab, I believe, that says uh, reports, I think is what it is, or land access or something like that. You can click that and there's a report for the Midwest. And then here, I think around the 17th of September, they'll be dropping the report for 
um, before, for the Mid-Atlantic. But it's pretty staggering. I mean, the, the the numbers that they have in terms of you know land that's locked in these states, it's like for, for New York, it's like 40,000 acres that is unaccessible uh, that you could potentially be hunting. And then in Pennsylvania, there's 20, uh, 27,000 acres that's unaccessible that you could otherwise be hunting, fishing, you know, doing whatever you, you would like to do recreationally in the outdoors. And then in Jersey, there's about 14,000 uh, acres of land that is, um, that is landlocked as well that you can't get access to that you, that you should be able to have access to. So that's kind of cool that they're doing this project, kind of making people aware of uh, what's out there and that should be accessible and is not that way we can try to open those, open those lands up for, for hunters, anglers, bird watchers, whoever wants to go enjoy them. Um, probably as, as important now as it's ever been being able to get outdoors and um, get a little peace of mind, whether you're just, taking a hike or whether you're, whether you're intending to fling some arrows. So with that, check out, uh, onyxhunt.com, check out the, and their land report. Be sure to be on the lookout, sign up for it. Um, and be sure to get the download whenever it comes out on the 17th of September. So with that, have a cool show today. What this really is, is, uh, we're going in the way back machine actually, cause this was a podcast that I recorded with my buddies from, uh, Exodus trail cameras. And this was actually done at the Harrisburg show in February pre COVID-19 pandemic pre, you know, world kind of going crazy. Um, and we recorded this as kind of a co-branded thing. Like you, you guys know, not only do they, do we do stuff together with the podcast or whatever, and they're, you know, partners that, that I work with, with the podcast, but Chad, Jake, Cameron, those guys are actually just really good friends of mine. I spend time with them and, you know, scouting and hunting and stuff like that. And this was just a chance for us to sit down and do kind of like a, a bullshit session together um, at the Harrisburg show. And we talked a little bit about my, my Iowa hunt. We talked about, you know, some, the hunt that Jake had this past year, the buck that he killed. And then of course the, the encounters that Chad had last year with a pretty impressive deer, um, just thought it'd be cool to kind of throw this one out, out there. Since I had it in the archives, it was still sitting there. I thought it'd be kind of cool to release this one now as we're getting ready for the season to kick off or some folks have already had their season kick off and kind of hear some of these, you know, stories of, of hunts from last year. And then also we talk about some strategy stuff too, that might be nice just to kind of, of a refresher as you listen through that might be good to remember as you're heading into your season. So with that, we'll go ahead and get this thing kicked off. Jake will be leading the charge and kicking us off with this next podcast. As always, thank you all for listening. All right, we are live. It is Friday evening of the Great American Outdoor Show. This is the second Friday evening for us because you rolled into town last Friday, helped us at the booth for yeah. the weekend. You come back to help us again for weekend number two, yeah. and we had to get a podcast in the book. So thanks for stopping by again, Clay. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for putting up with me and giving me a, a place to squat, man. No, I mean this is like the one time of the year outside of like if I make it to ATA or not that I get to see you guys. I mean, I yeah. see this knucklehead once in a while, once like a while. yeah, when we go hunt or scout or whatever. But like you know, yeah. being in Illinois, it's like I never see you except like for these. I mean, we text and talk yeah. around them, but face-to-face happens really only during show season for you and I. So yeah. I really do this for our relationship, Jake. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. Two weekends in a row. <laughs> That's right, man. My wife's like, hey, you're spending a lot of time like, you know, with a bunch of dudes at a house like on the weekends as opposed to staying with me. I don't know what this says about our marriage. It's true whitetail love right here. <laughs> That's right. <It's laughs> the whitetail cribs love. For real. <laughs> so I guess before getting into things too far, um, Glenn, it's been a while since we, like, Long overdue, should have been on the podcast prior, but we just didn't make it happen. Yeah, and here we are, and we're looking forward to it. I was talking to you, I guess, a couple weeks ago, and we kind of recapture Iowa hunt, mm-hmm. and you drew that coveted Iowa tag. Yeah, 
and you got it done on public land. That's pretty. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm not gonna say I wasn't a little bit apprehensive about it. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where you know you wait so long, you put points in, and you kind of you really do daydream about it as a whitetail hunter about you know going out and, and doing that right. And I think one of the biggest things is you know, not having delusions of grandeur that, you know, the old wives tale of there being 180 inch deer around every tree when you make it out there, you know, and, and, you know, the one thing I didn't want to do was, um, botch the experience by having my expectations out of whack with what was, what I could feasibly pull off. Now there's big deer out there, no Mm -hmm. doubt, you know, and, and you see a lot more of them, you know, out there than you do in most places, but, I didn't want to pass up a deer that would be a good deer, especially on public land, you know, a place I don't have really any familiarity with, um, especially the piece I was hunting on. It wasn't an area that I had even scouted when I went out in March or shed hunted when I went out in March. I went out with Utah for like, I guess it was three days we got the shed hunt. And, mm-hmm. you know, he showed me around that piece of public, you know, some of the areas that he's shed hunted and ha- has hunted in the past. And where I ended up hunting most of the time was just not, you know, anywhere close to those places. Um, and so with that, I wasn't, you know, holding out for a 170 inch deer or whatever. It was really, you know, whatever happened to get me excited, I was going to let an arrow go. And it ended up being kind of a crazy trip because there was, <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I remember being in Illinois watching this unfold. <laughs> I'm like, what in the hell is there going on? Were, there here? were days I wish I was in Illinois watching someone else's <laughs> unfold. Like, But I mean, it was I couldn't have asked for a better hunt, you know what I mean? As far as like having like the full experience and, and stuff like that. And, and I've said it before, I think whenever Chad and I did, you know, he and I did a Q and a session with some of the the listeners of the, of the truth podcast. And, yep. um, you know, we talked a little bit about it. And for me, this hunt was really probably a watershed moment as far as like really hunting the way I want to hunt. Cause I think it's hard whenever you're just doing, you know, when you're a working, you know, guy or girl, like, folks out there that are listening it's you know most of us get to do weekends and then we maybe take some vacation time and take a trip or whatever but even when we take those trips maybe it's three days four days a long weekend depending on how far you want to travel or whatever um so you're really never getting into that like hunting immersive kind of mindset where that's all you're going to do for two weeks you know and i was solo so it wasn't like i was going home at night to a cabin and talking to people it was just like thinking about whitetails and hunting 24 7 for you know 15 days straight you know um and so it really gave me a lot of opportunity to to try new things and make some mistakes and um and so that was you know it was a watershed moment because i was able to hunt really the way i've always wanted to hunt i was able to kind of have it come to fruition um and now i kind of understand better how to do it in micro instances as opposed to like in those you know macro Mm long-term seasonal kind of plays now i think i'm better suited to take those two, three day opportunities that you get and apply that kind of style of aggressive mobile hunting where, you know, I'm freelancing a lot. Like there's a lot of places I set up in that I had no prior knowledge of other than walking in, reading the sign, finding the right place, and then just reading what the woods was telling me and and making some gut decisions. And that was kind of the approach. Did it take you five or four points to draw? It was, uh, I purchased three points this year would have been my fourth. So I bought the tag which technically was my fourth point so it was four four points nice yeah so it wasn't i know some folks i think it was uh i forget who was telling me i think andy may mm-hmm. was i think it was his fourth year and he thought for sure he was going to draw uh, yeah. and, and ended up not drawing. keep hearing that more and more yeah, yeah yeah so and i was in zone six so it's a coveted i mean all of i was kind of coveted but you know that's one of the most three coveted five zones. six yeah yeah so 
but yeah, it was good, man. You know, it's, I know you had a good season. You know, <coughs> yeah, as always, like Jake always pulls he's through. A killer. <laughs> he's a killer. He's a killer of. Well, somebody got to kill something here at Exodus, <laughs> right? Usually, we rely on Jake, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's. <laughs> it. I wish it never meets my expectations, and maybe that's just part of me. But I, yeah, I, I killed a probably my oldest deer to date. Sent out its teeth. I think it's gonna be eight or nine years old, and uh, it was probably. A, Mid 160s, low 160s last year. Wow. There was two big deer on this particular parcel. One was a 189 inch clean seven by seven. Man, and uh, this was the second biggest deer, so I just named him the number two buck. And he, I think he got bullied even last year. I had videos of him coming into scrapes with his tail tucked. And uh, I guess going back even further in September, when I got permission for this parcel, I found a scrape open in September, wow. put a camera over it, and then I got this deer in velvet multiple times, and then. Rolling through the season, never having a counter or see him. Um, I think the last picture I got him was like November 15th, chasing a doe, and then he came back late, late season. And then um, rolling into this year, never saw him. I thought I got a picture of him in velvet, like maybe three or four inches on the main beams on both sides, the brow tines going up. I don't think it was him after killing him and being able to look at it. And then saw him in a field mid-October, did not put two and two together. It was probably three quarters to a mile away from where I ended up killing him. And I was like, man, that's an old looking deer. looks like he's got like a crow foot G2 coming off the right side. And, uh, then it wasn't probably like six, seven days later. I got a video of him all hobbled up, hunched up, looking like hell. Really? <laughs> and then I guess there was a, I, I don't know, probably 150 inch nine pointer that was on video right after he was all hunched up and this looked awful. And I had multiple videos of them together, and the one nine-pointer always looked like it bullied this buck. So long story short, set up there, and on the second sit in that area of November 3rd, uh, wind cutting across a cliff, and uh, saw him open up another scrape, and did the old pulled out the old extinguisher, <laughs> which, is an, which is an ongoing joke here at Exodus. I pulled out the extinguisher, tried extinguishing him, right. and... Uh, he went away, um, looked like he was, you know, still searching. Then he came back like 10 minutes later, worked the scrape again. Oh, I let out the extinguisher again. He, you know, heads heads north once again, the opposite direction. Mind you, my wind at that time, I'm maybe about a quarter of the way down this hill, and my thermals, I'm hoping, are shooting up over him yet or maybe clipping up over the, over the cliff. And then it went over to where there was 100% going over the cliff from what I could tell. And so then... Hit the extinguisher second time. He heads north, disappears, and I'm like, "Wow, it was this awesome seeing that deer." I've been hunting him for two years now, and was that the first time you saw? Him yeah, on the first hoof? time I ever saw him on the hoof, and I was like, "I remember texting my girlfriend like it was this." Honestly, I was amped just to see the deer. I said, "If he comes by, I'm still shooting him," but I was actually just really excited to see him. I was like, "He looks like hell now, <laughs> you know, in, right. in person too," and it wasn't uh, probably another ten or fifteen minutes. I'm still looking, and I'm sitting down with my bow in my hand still, just, like, waiting for something to happen. And I just see his front right hoof on, like, a just a bunch of hedge trees that have fallen over and stuff. Right. And I was like, oh, shit, like, that's him. Right. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, worked right through, and I was hunting in a really thick area. I did not trim any lanes. I had one tiny little narrow spot, and I arranged it. He stepped right in there, and, and I shot him and put a marginal shot, but I ended up recovering him the next morning. And uh, I was pretty pretty excited. I mean, even the the saga of the recovery, and we talk about it. We've interviewed people, and we've talked about it as well. Of 
putting a marginal shot on a deer and recovering it is always just kind of a crappy feeling. But yeah. found him the next morning, kind of in the area I thought he would go. I never found my arrow or blood. And I guess if you want to hear the full, full, long, long version, it's on, I don't know, one of our episodes. Ended up finding him and just an old gnarly deer, big old knotted up uh, right, I guess, knee for a deer. And then his right. back left hips all busted. So it was yeah. cool to put a put an end to the story and, and put a tag there. But there's still other deer I wanted to kill right. <laughs> that I didn't. Now, did you ever find any of his sheds previously? No, I got access to that on that farm two, two Septembers ago. Okay. So... You know, I, it's kind of cool, actually, I guess, rolling back into that. After I killed that deer, I waited maybe like three or four weeks, and then I texted the guy that hunts to the south of me even further, and I said, hey, I killed this deer. And he's like, oh, that's a nice deer. And then I waited, like, it was kind of like radio silence, and then two days later, he sent me a picture of that deer in 2015 in a bean field where I saw him, and he was, you know, a really solid buck then, too. So right. it was kind of cool to see that deer's so, man, evaded, evaded hunters for a very long time, and I would be lying if I said I didn't wish he was still 160. <laughs> right. But right. still, nonetheless, I mean, it was a mature deer that, you know, I killed him on his, I guess, rut, rut pattern because that scrape that opened up that I saw opened up in September two years ago, that was not open until the very beginning part of November. I had a camera over there, not over that scrape, but he was in there two days before I killed him. And so, you know, all these scrapes were opening up as he came back onto that farm. So I found right. that really interesting right yeah that's because that would be typically i mean you would think that scrape would open up the same time every year then right if it's you would the same deers around you would think but the flip side of that is that 189 this year got killed and i had both oh of those. so you knew that got killed yeah so okay. that got killed last year and then so i had both of those deer hit that scrape <clears throat> last year the deer i killed hit that at the very end of october like 26 27th and then that 189 came and hit the scrape the next night so right. i think it was a, a scenario where he was further north on the farm this deer was on the south part of the farm and it's just overlap so then the fact that yeah. that deer was gone and maybe that competition wasn't as as fierce that he didn't have to <laughs> patrol the area or you know scent right. check it or, that, or maybe that bigger one was the one kind of laying down the sign you know that's pissing in that dude's Wheaties, firing him up, maybe. Well, I think he opened that up originally because I didn't get that 189 until late October. Okay. And then, so I think that this was more of his core area, per se. But then I was Got talking it. to that guy, and he's like, man, I haven't walked I haven't walked that part of the farm in five years because it's too hard to get to. And that's where I saw that deer come out and feed, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before I killed him. So right. I think he just found a little piece. And, and the honey pressure in this area, I would say, is, is pretty fierce. It's not like eastern PA, but... Right. Where I'm at, there's there's a lot of I guess gun pressure and so. so. So when you say it's not like Eastern PA, you're not getting shot at by duck hunters. Is that, <laughs> is that fair to say? There's duck hunters, but I'm not getting shot at. No. <laughs> that was that was my move. But speaking of 189 big deer, man, it's uh, this guy here in hard places to hunt. Yeah, hard places to hunt, hard places to kill deer. But I think um, I think I've shared the story so yeah, much yeah. that probably everybody listening has probably heard it. So right, yeah. Well, uh, well, well, you and I are getting down there soon to get after it. Couple see, weeks, yeah, yeah, dude. I'm ex I'm excited to get down there. I'm pumped about it. Check some of those cameras. Hopefully, figure out where the hell that deer goes in November. Um, and we still we want to make some trips in October though, too, right? That's like the game the, plan. The deer is killable in October. Yes, right. the deer is killable in October. Probably. Well, I guess there was a in 17. I think in 2017 that deer was actually on camera from. Well, the entire month of November from like the 4th all the way to December 4th, 
But then in 18, that camera was actually dead because it was down there unchecked for 18 months or whatnot. So I'm not right. entirely sure what's going on um, there in 18, but the deer is killable for sure in October. Yeah. Yeah, I'm already looking forward to taking some of those trips in October because the last time I went down was with you, of course, and it was... Is that 17? Was, I get my years, years ago. I get my years 17. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure no, it was no, 17. It had to be 18. No, it was... No. Just, last season was 19. We hunted... Oh, you guys hunted, I hunted, hunted Ontario, Ohio, Clint's spot in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was 17 because that yeah. was the same year I went to Montana because yeah. it's like I just got back, which was perfect because I was in good shape <laughs> for <laughs> from Montana to go to hunt this spot, which is gnarly for whitetail hunting. That's like, funny when a whitetail hunter saying, "Well, I got back from Montana. I'm glad I was in good shape to go to go deer hunting." Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it was just one of those things where that area. I mean, you know, it's just it's um it's just as thick as it is. Like it's not that you. It's just a long, you have to take the long way around to get anywhere for, for access. Like there's no easy access anywhere. So anytime you're walking in, it's like, you're taking like the, the around the world loop to get into yeah. where you're trying to get to. And like, you're inevitably <laughs> going to hit some type of clear cut along the way. Yeah. Especially if like, I mean, Chad knows better where like those, those obstacles are at. I do not, you know what I mean? So whenever I'm walking into an area, I'm looking on, you know, my phone to see how I'm going to get in and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go this way. Well, I get three quarters of a mile in, and all of a sudden I'm up against a clear cut that I didn't know that was there. So now I'm like, okay, well, and how do I get around this? Or do I bushwhack through? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? So, like, the first day we hunted there, I, where I was trying to set up was only, I think I mapped, and it was like, it was less than a mile. It was only like six tenths or seven tenths, say, seven tenths a mile, of a mile. Three quarters of a mile. Yeah. yeah. And it took me an hour and a half. He tried going up the drainage with all these deadfalls. Yeah, and it was just like there was a path. Like I remembered from scouting, like there was a small path you could get on. Like when I say a path, it was like an old like deer trail, or it was like a trail that like people were using to run dogs and like to hunt, you know, rabbits in this like area. Because like the area that where you access, you had to walk in through like this clear cut with like a bunch of this like just crap that they bulldozed into this drainage or whatever and like to clear the log landing or whatever. And so you have to climb over logs to get down. And that wasn't a problem. It was like, but then you had to find this little narrow path to walk into like to get into the, the end of the timber or whatever. And if you're three feet to either side, I mean, you're walking through like multi-floor rows and just gnarly crap that's over your head. And I got stuck in that. I fell down. I didn't even hit the ground when I fell down. Like all this God. stuff like held Spider me up. And, you. Yeah. And so it's like I ended up having to make my way through that. Yeah. And then when I got to the other side, I realized I was literally only like four feet off the path to the left. Yeah. You know. Jeez. And it took me an hour and a half to get through there. But at that time we were carrying like we were each climbers carrying and climbers sticks or sticks. Yeah. and sticks, camera gear, like we were carrying all this stuff in it. That's something that I found last year just using a saddle 100%. there. It, it it is a little easier. Well, that was the biggest thing for me in Iowa. Whenever I was saying that I was able to actually hunt the way I really wanted to hunt this year while I was there, it was it was a couple things. It was not just knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting the way I wanted to hunt strategically, 
but it was also hunting the way I wanted to hunt, like from a gear standpoint that was allowing me to be as mobile as I was being. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I moved in a hunt exclusively out of a saddle. You know, I modded my sticks down to, you know, 15 to 17 inches with a five step climbing aid or so it's like my setup weighs nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so whenever I go, it's not one of those things where it's like you, you're in a tree and you know, like, man, I should move. You know what I mean? But, but, you're, I, don't really but you're going, like, I don't want to tear all this yeah. stuff down and have to carry all this stuff again. Like as driven as you are, it's like that, those thoughts do come in, especially whenever you're grinding for like seven, eight, nine, you know, you're into that like later part of the hunt. Yep. You're just like, for, do I really want it that bad? You know? And so whenever you're, when you're that light, it's just like, it's a no brainer. You know what I mean? Cause it's literally, it takes me like no time to get in and out of the tree and I'm able to kind of get down and move and I'm able to get onto the next piece and onto the next set of sign, you know? So, I mean, I think, I'm looking forward to hunting this place again with that now in my back pocket and with the confidence of like having had that freelance style hunting and being successful at it because now it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm just more confident and able to kind of make those changes in real time as opposed to, you know, setting a plan for each day and just working that plan. It's like the plan is almost minute to minute, like you know, cause I have no problem now getting out of a tree. If I set up and I'm like, I should see movement by nine 30, 10 o'clock. If I don't see anything at like by 10, I'm looking on my phone and figuring out where I'm going next. And then 1030, my stuff's come out of the tree and I'm moving, you know, and I'm going to find an evening setup, you know, so that's, I'm really looking forward to hunting that piece now with that kind of like perspective, because mm-hmm. I think that that's really what it takes there because you'll sit for days and not see deer, you know, in a funnel or in a pinch point yep. somewhere or whatever. It's like, you got to be willing to move bump deer and find where they're at. And then set up on where they're spending time because otherwise you're going to wait a long time. Yep. But 100%. There's, there's two ways to do it. The way you just described or somebody who has a whole lot of time <laughs> on their hands and is super, super grit. patient and is, and I've done that mentally past. tough as hell. Yeah. yeah. It's like, cause you used to make fun of me. You're like, I've I never know. seen someone who can just go sit somewhere <laughs> and like not move. And he's like, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. Cause I would just do dark to dark sits in a spot yeah. a day after day after day. Yeah. Damn. But it's, I can't do it anymore for whatever reason. It's like I would rather bump deer, know where they're at, and yeah, be able to make a play. Almost like FOMO, like the fear of missing out of what else is going on in other in other places. And sometimes it'll bite you too. You know what I mean? Sure. There's like, well, that's you know, part, yeah, that's part of yeah. it. It's like <laughs> I had a guy uh, stop by the booth today, and he was asking me all these questions about um, hunting deer that he called nocturnal, or was getting he was getting nighttime pictures of, and it's like you know he kept referencing Dan, but he didn't know like how much was too much. Or when he was going to screw something up, I'm like, dude, you, you just don't just know. Do like, it. <laughs> go do it and mess up. Like, that's the only way you're going to learn is to go out and make those mistakes and realize, okay, that's too far. I'm too far away or I'm too close and I and I, I screwed the hunt up. Yeah. Like, you got to go do it. And that's the only way to learn. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, like, I'm starting to change and having a different view on, like, postseason scouting even, like, even with, like, the way I've kind of was able to hunt this year and it's changed how I think I'm going to approach postseason scouting. Cause before it's like, I would really go in and like be meticulous and like try to like not grid search, but like, I mean, really cover a piece really, really well. Right. And I'm more and more just mainly interested in like going during the time of the day where deer should be bedded and then trying to literally kick up deer while I'm scouting and then be able to know, all right, this is where they're, this is where they're betting. Now that could change whenever October, November comes around and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right. But it gives you like a starting point, right? Mm-hmm. That way you're starting from a point, a position of like, I know that there had been deer here in the past. 
And that way, if you do have cameras out and you are getting dark deered on your cameras or whatever, you know where the first logical stage of betting is to kind of go check. And so you should then know how far you can push that envelope, mm-hmm. right? So you'll know a betting's in this general area and this is about 75 yards off. So this might be like the zone in which I want to play. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of validate that a little bit with some in-season scouting to see where signs being laid down and stuff like that. But that would be maybe one way I would kind of tackle that would mm-hmm. be to kind of use the postseason for that. Because I just, I feel like I've wasted a lot of time in the past postseason scouting the wrong way. Where it's just, you know, I think the in-season time is much better spent than it is postseason. I would totally agree with that. I think for a lot of guys, it's hard to go into the woods, and myself included, to go in the woods and you see all the sign that's laid down. You know, there's no there's no foliage on the trees anywhere. It's very easy to see, very long ways, whether that's tracks, rubs, scrapes, whatever. The, the entire woods is opened up. But it's still sometimes hard to relate that sign to what time of the year it was actually laid down yeah, on. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it has happened a month ago or two months ago or three months ago or four months ago. Like, how do you decipher, you know, when that was actually made and what part of the season? That's, yeah. that's, a, that's there's not very many guys that do that that well. Right. I mean, because I think, you know, even with scrapes, like people are like, well, that's, you know, of course, like, you know, October into like November sign or like mid-October into like November sign, right, or whatever. But, like, deer will lay down sign, mm-hmm. like, throughout the year. You know what I mean? So it's not, like, it's more rare, right? It's probably, there's probably fewer, you know, scrapes during whatever time of the year outside of, like, you know, pre-rut and rut. Mm-hmm. But they still have to communicate during the course of the year. Like, yep. they don't just stop communicating altogether with one another. It's just a little bit more sparse, so you don't see it as often, right? I know when I went out in late seasons, like, I was still finding rubs, like, with shavings on the ground and stuff. So it's like... If you come along, you know, postseason and you find that rub, it's like, and you go, I'm going to hunt this in October, you know, or mid-October, you know, it's like, man, you're like two months too early, you know what I mean? And so it's just, you know, I think that was the biggest thing for me this year and the way I was approaching things was like, I was finding stuff that I knew that I could hunt that day, you Mm -hmm. know, and I knew that it was accurate. Um, And I wasn't afraid to, to, to bump deer. I was giving them a little bit more credit for having more nerve than a lot of people probably think that they do. You know, and that was pain. Now, granted, I was in Iowa, yep, right, but I was still using the same approach in in Pennsylvania, and I was having the best encounters I've had in years this year with the deer that I had on camera that I wanted to target. You know, and so it was the same approach. It was bump them if I have to, be aggressive, and then you know set up on them when I find them. You know, and that was that was really it. And then swapped how I changed how I used. I can talk a little bit about that, but how I used cameras in Iowa. You know, it was kind of tied to how I was. Yeah, touch base yeah, on that a little bit because it's. Um, I guess I'll just let you tackle and not put words in your mouth. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know, most folks, you know, if they have the opportunity to, you know, if you're hunting a piece that you're familiar with, like you're putting cameras out and you're doing the classic kind of approach of, you know, summer you're really inventorying, right? And then once, you know, deer kind of move off those primary food sources, you're transitioning into your, you know, your scrape areas or your pinch points you're going to kind of really focus on for a pre-rut and rut. And then if you're going to transition them again, I know that we've talked about in the past – you know, leaving cameras set all year round. I like to do that if I have a piece that I'm familiar with. But in the instance of, of, of Iowa and a lot of the public that I hunt, like I typically don't hunt the same public pieces even in Pennsylvania year after year. Like I'm usually hopping to new pieces almost every year. Um, and But in the case of, of, of Iowa, it's like I really didn't have a lot of intel, you know, on any of the pieces I was hunting. And I would scout through and find a spot to hunt and, you know, 
the story goes, I missed a really nice deer. <laughs> if we'll go ahead and put that out there. Um, you know, on like the fifth or sixth day of the hunt, I missed like a mid 140s eight point that I set up on a primary scrape area. And he came in within an hour of me being in the tree. It was probably like one o'clock or so. And I was bummed out that I missed him. I ended up catching up to him like a couple of days later. Missed him again. You know, we'll go ahead and put that this out there. Where, I was yeah. like, what the hell's going on? I know. Um, and, and so it was crazy that I caught back up with him. But then what I had, what I needed to know was that at this point I was getting later in like the end of the first week, beginning of the second week of November, where you will start to see scrapes close up at that point with, if the, you know, the bucks in the air that are laying or that are tending those scrapes or found those and are yep. starting to get on lock in, into lockdown and stuff like that, those things will dry up. And so what I didn't want to do is be spending time in an area where the scrapes were drying up. Cause I was really kind of hunting active scrapes was really what my, my plan was. And so what I ended up doing was I had a render, you know, with me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to hang this on this scrape. I was like, not that I'm trying to find that deer that I missed or even try to find a specific buck. I just want to know that there's does hitting this scrape because if they are, then I know that there's going to be bucks in the area. And I'd already seen, you know, missed one twice in that general area. And so then I know that that area is still a good spot to kind of continue to scout, find sign. If he's still laying down sign, then it's still a place that's viable. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't see does hitting that scrape and all of a sudden things started to dry up, I knew that I probably need to kind of move off to another place until that opened up again. And so that was kind of how I was using cameras in that case. It wasn't looking for a specific deer. I was literally just looking to see if the scrape was still active. And if it could tell me that, I would literally get up every morning and check and be like, all right, a doe hit it, a doe hit it. Oh, a buck hit it at like 4 a.m. or at 3 a.m. or whatever. I was like, okay, cool. Wasn't a shooter, but it's being tended, you know, during, you know, during the night or whatever. And so I know that other deer are going to have to come by at some point to check that. I just need to figure out where they're coming from and what other part of this parcel are they spending time on. And that was really what the boots on the ground did for me. It went and allowed me to find where those other deer were spending time. Yeah, I would say the most powerful way to use cameras in farm country or Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, or Ohio, I really think monitoring scrapes is the most powerful way you can use your cameras, mm -hmm. hands down. And that's from inventory, knowing when, you know, scrape week. We, we have a ton of podcasts about that on yep. Cam Radio. And then even when they go dry and then when does come back and hit them, and then a day or two later, a very mature buck is going to hit that. And a lot of times in my experience, it's been in daylight. And then even rolling into um, Thanksgiving time frame in those community scrapes, I have a lot of big bucks hitting them at that time. I, I don't know. I, I live and die by scrapes pretty much year round, whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to not. Um, and it was really more um, because I wasn't – for, I think for the longest time, I wasn't looking for the right ones, right? And that was something I had to kind of learn a painful lesson, which was like hunting the wrong scrapes. And it was really a lot of talking with, you know, guys like John Eberhardt and, you know, Dan mm -hmm. Enfault and stuff like yep. that. And I know we all know those guys and, and just really listening to them and then having some outside the podcast conversations with them about it and stuff like that to where it really finally sunk in. Because in Pennsylvania, I had literally zero success for the longest time hunting scrapes. But what I realized was, was that I just wasn't prioritizing the ones that were either in close to side cover, right? Or the ones that you would find that is close, to, uh, you know, in and near and around bedding cover. Absolutely. And those are, you know, and those are like the money spots, yep. right? And that was kind of what I was focusing on. And I was, because, I mean, I was, before I found that primary scrape area that I ended up missing that big deer, I probably passed 12 scrapes. Like, it. Like as a Pennsylvania hunter, you know how hard it was for me to walk by twelve scrapes <laughs> yeah. that like that were all fret like fresh, like they'd all been tended within the last probably like day, day and a half, mm -hmm. right? 
but it was I knew that was not wasn't the right spot because you have to kind of qualify the the sign based on where you're at. Like all sign is not created equal, right? That sign in PA, like those twelve scrapes, probably would have meant something different to me than they did in did in Iowa, right? And so I kind of walked by them, knowing that like, man, there's got to be something even better, right? And that's just basically what I stumbled onto was like six scrapes all within about a ten yard area with a rub, you know, which I really like whenever I find a rub with the scrape. Like to me, that's like spidey senses go off. And I sent you a picture of that rub. Yep. It was like neck high. And I was like, okay, you know, it was like all these scrapes and a, and a rub that's neck high. Like that wasn't a small deer that made that sign. I was like, so that was, you know, exactly why I set up in that spot. But when you're talking about the scrapes in relation to some type of security cover, mm-hmm. what is like, what is the approximate distance? Is that like on the edge? Is that scrape on the edge of that security cover? Or is that 40 yards away from that security cover? When is when is it close enough? Uh, I mean, for me, I prefer it to be right up in the business. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I'm similar to you where it's like I don't mind hunting thick stuff where I can only see maybe 15, 20 yards. Right. You know what I mean? So, like, to me, that's what I want, you know. Um, and that where I ended up killing that deer in Iowa, that was kind of what I had. Like, this, the, actually, the scrape, like, Eberhardt will want to hunt to where he can actually shoot to the scrape. I like that sometimes if I'm right bet if I'm right up against security cover, like literally where he can take two steps and be gone, like I will set up the hunt and shoot toward toward a scrape. And that's kind of how I hunted some of the scrapes in Pennsylvania. In Iowa, what I was kind of recognizing was I was getting I had some really good setups, but it, I just I guess maybe I wasn't familiar enough with the terrain and wasn't playing the terrain what right because I got I got the one time the deer that I missed twice when he finally busted me, he caught a little bit of a thermal, a thermal pull up the side of this little, uh, up the edge of this draw. And that was kind of what ended the game for me with, with that particular deer. And so what I ended up doing in that case was I actually backed off the scrape and actually moved back into the timber, like a hundred yards off that scrape. Now I also had some other data cause I did some scouting. I found two of his beds. I found one of the rubs and or I found some rubs and a scrape that was actually in the timber and I kicked him out of a bed on my way through there. And so I knew how he was kind of working that little that mm-hmm. little terrain feature there to get into that area to check those scrapes. And so I caught him on his way, basically. Right. I, I dough bleeded him in with and then I gave him a tending grunt and that brought him that brought right. him in because he was checking those scrapes. So you used you use the scrape as you're like A to B, like bedding to scrape, you cut him off in the middle. In that case, yeah, because I was getting they had the upper hand on me because of the terrain. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was what I figured out after I hunted that general area, like three different hunts. I figured out that I needed to get off where the scrapes were at and I needed to get further back into the timber. And once I got back in there, I needed to set up to where that draw, it was all bare. Like, so as I'm sitting here, I had a triple trunk tree that I was in and there was a draw that was down here to my right side and it was all open. So if a deer wanted to approach me from behind, he was, or try to get downwind of me, he was going to have to expose himself in that draw, which I knew they wouldn't want to do. Right. And so I set up that way purposefully to give me a barrier. That way everything would have to come mm-hmm. this, this way toward me. Right? right. And that was kind of how I set up because the, where I kicked him out of, he was really just, you know, to my 11 o'clock is where I bumped him from. And that scrape was directly at 12 o'clock, maybe 150 yards uh, away from me. And then the other weird thing, and you'll know this just from hunting big woods is that you know, you don't always get like a big goat path. Like you do maybe in like dedicated, like ag country or mm-hmm. whatever, where deer are moving. Like it was literally just like an indentation of like leaves that you could just slightly tell that animals had kind of gone through that area. And I had seen that. And the reason I, the reason I was able to recognize that was because 
when I missed that deer the first time, I didn't notice there was a little trail off the another scrape that was a little further down in front of me. And I didn't, I didn't see it because it wasn't obvious enough. And whenever he hit that scrape, he walked into that trail. Yep. And I was expecting him to come further up to mm. attend those other scrapes. Yep. And so once I recognized that, because I was like, after I missed him, I was like, what made him walk off like this scrape line? Like, why did he dip down in the, you know, into this draw? And it was literally because like there was just a little indentation that I couldn't see it until I got there. And so when I saw that, whenever I was scouting that next spot, I was like, this is how they're coming through. I was like, this is definitely how he's going to walk through here. So I set up to have a shot toward that. And sure enough, I put it on an Instagram post. I don't know if you saw that one, but I drew an arrow. It said, want, want buck here. And that's exactly where I shot that deer is where I drew that arrow. Gotta love when that happens. I know, right? It's like I couldn't plan it out any, any better. But to answer your question, I think it just depends on like what the setup is, you know, yeah. and how if, if I can be on a scrape and, and sit to hunt and shoot at, to, to a scrape, I'll definitely take that, but I definitely want it to be at least up against side cover. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to get too far off of it because I feel like then I'm going to get, I'm going to get dark deer or it's going to be at like very last light yep. and I'm going to have a marginal shot opportunity. <clears throat> right. Good answer. Yeah. So it was, that was my channeling John Eberhart, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in a unique position. I mean, you've had those conversations with those types of cats for three, this, this June will be four years. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they always talk about it taking a year or two for things to like to really start clicking. Yeah. And it seems like you've been pretty effective, at least getting in, you know, getting in the money zone pretty often. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was funny. I was talking to Dan about it when he and I did a show together and I just told him, I was like, this year was like the year that like the light bulb finally went off. I was like, it's like, I didn't have to think about it anymore. It's just like, and that was what he said. He's like, most, the hardest part is, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, hunting or job or whatever marriage it doesn't matter it's like you know it all takes work you know and most people just aren't willing to kind of go through like the the learning curve and like the failures along the way in order for it to become second nature right most people are like you know i can't hunt beds because it's too hard and i don't ever find beds it's like well these guys aren't most of the time hunting a specific bed like they're usually hunting a general bedding area Mm -hmm. right in which they know deer are bedding in right so yeah, if you can find the bed, then then great. But like, you don't need to necessarily find that bed to know that deer are yeah. bedding in there, or a, or a buck is bedding in there. Um, and so it's just going through that process of like, you know, learning that you're going to fail along the way, and that's where you're going to kind of pick up the most valuable information. And eventually, one day, it's just going to click, and you're going to be like, "That's how it works," you know. Um, and it's hard to kind of describe, you know, what I mean, where it just all starts to make sense, and you start to see the pieces happen, where it's like, you don't have to think about the wind necessarily and, and like you already know what the thermals are going to do and mm-hmm. i was playing that on that last hunt because that you know it was an evening and it was warm and so everything was kind of pulling up over the the side of that the the side of that draw and i had a wind that was basically coming from my back but was just cutting just over to my my right and i don't remember exactly which direction that would be in relationship to how it's setting up and i was expecting the deer to come in basically from my 11 o'clock and my wind was blowing from like toward my like one o'clock mm-hmm. but through the day it was going to shift right so if i had like a, a south you know a southwest wind it was going to start to have a little bit more you know uh, uh east in it as the day was going to go and i knew by dropping milkweed and kind of checking that i was going to be okay until like almost closing time mm-hmm. and when that deer came in i mean the wind had already switched and i was getting that you know more of that easterly wind and i was riding the wind on a razor's edge where yeah. it was like I had, I mean, we're talking feet between yeah. being busted and not busted. Right. You know what I mean? And that was, but that was the other thing too. It's like that deer came in with all the confidence in the world. Like he had, 
I mean, he would have never thought in a million years I was set up where I was set up. Yeah. You know, because he thought for sure he was bulletproof walking in there. That's that was the hardest part for me was give learning to give the deer the win because yeah. I grew up, you know, it's counterintuitive. It, it's hard. Well, I think for people my age in their mid thirties, like you grew up watching uh, traditional outdoor media on TV and reading traditional magazine articles, and it's like you you hear and see people talking about being in the stand with the wind in their face right Mm -hmm. and that's not that's not uh conducive to killing mature animals because they're not going to move right in that manner at least to my experience and there's some guys that don't pay attention to the wind at all but uh, you know anybody that's doing it consistently is giving the deer the wind yeah to their advantage and it makes access tricky that was the other thing too it's like i was really because i was doing so much ground and pound of just Uh like pounding the pound the dirt every day and you know, however many miles I would hike until I'd find a setup. It's like I was always having to be mindful of what my wind was doing for my access yes, too. Cause every point I was always on an access mission. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Cause it wasn't, I didn't really know where I was going. I didn't have like, you know, I was just talking to our buddy Zach. Right. And like it, he said something I thought that was really kind of, you know, poignant, which was, you know, when he goes to hunt, like he goes out to hunt without an, without a destination in mind. Right. He doesn't get locked into a spot. Um, and that makes it sometimes hard for access, right? Because you don't really know where you're, where you're going. But even like the one hunt I had, like in that CRP field where I jumped, you know, that was the other part that I mentioned. It's like I jumped like a legit booner while I was out there in this, you know, draw in the middle of the CRP field. But if I would have thought about it more, I should have known that there might have been a buck bedded there. And like, so your access, my access was great as far as like the wind was in my face. So I wasn't going to get winded. But if I walk up on a deer bedded, where do you think he's looking? Yeah. He's looking in my direction because mm-hmm. he's got his six with the wind and he's watching with his eyes out in front of him. Yep. You know what I mean? And so I talked to Zach about that a little bit. And I was actually talking to Jared Scheffler about it too. And he was like, yeah, he's like, there's times whenever I'm on a stock is what he kind of mentioned where I'm literally just going in, giving them the wind, you know, until I get to a point to where I recognize what my next moves are going to be. And then I'm starting to cut the wind and play the wind and try to figure out how I can beat his nose, you yeah. know? Um, because you also have to take, especially when you're spotting in stock and you have to take into consideration their eyes too, Mm -hmm. you know, well, eyes and ears at the same time, but you know, you can get away with the wind a little bit. And that's that whole idea of like, they've got more nerve than you think they do. So them winding you from 300 yards away probably doesn't blow them out, but you get much closer than that. You probably need to start thinking about how you're going to start cutting the wind to make the move on them. You know? So that was the other kind of big learning curve was that the whole access piece while I was moving and, um, it was just an awesome experience, man. And it was, I always say, I said it was like a master's class in whitetail hunting. You know, it was just every day studying, studying maps, rethinking the hunt, you know, from the day and what I did right, what I did wrong, you know, and uh, knowing that I needed to practice with my bow more, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and you practice a lot or you Dude. shoot a lot and you have Greg on the podcast talking about different setups and stuff. I know, man. It's like <laughs> I shoot probably like in season, like starting probably in. Jeez, I don't know, probably like May, April, May, I, I start shooting probably like three to five days a week, mm-hmm. you know? And then as the season hits, it's like, I shoot every day during the season, like at least a couple hours. I have a setup in my basement. I go downstairs and shoot, you know, every day after work, after, you know, the sun gets to a point that I can't see after work or whatever, mm-hmm. or I'll shoot a couple hours in the morning. I like doing that after I work out because it kind of mimics the idea of like having your heart rate jacked up. Yeah. yeah. yeah heart rate jacked up and having that, you know, buck fever or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, a switch switch to a back tension release is like Greg. You know, mm-hmm. he's been on your show, and it's like Greg is a killer and a great archer. You know, and he's kind of been my like, in you know, my sensei, if you will, with archery. You know, and um, 
we rebuilt my shot and like I'm a good shot supposedly. <laughs> um, were you like, did you have buck fever or was it just whiffs or break us down? <clears throat> so the first miss, I hate that I have to say the first miss, like it's <laughs> was a uh, that one was a couple things, you know. I, I got a little shook because I didn't expect to see him that quickly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he just popped out of nowhere. I just happened to look up and I just saw dark chocolate tines coming through the timber. And I was just like, Oh shit, there he is. You know? And I immediately grabbed my bow and swung my camera around. And this is like, and I threw the camera out after this <laughs> and I was trying to get him on camera. I was trying to figure out what scrape he was going to come to. And so I was trying to get him in frame, trying to get him in frame. And like I said, like I didn't see that little trail that was there. And so I was expecting him, like I was set up to shoot him at like 15 yards, like right behind me, you know what I mean? At that, at that primary scrape area. And I had like the most beautiful opportunity once, like if he was moving too fast in between like the last tree and that scrape, it's like, I had like, I don't know, probably like five yards that he would have to go through that. There was not anything in between he and I that I could get a shot, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what I was expecting him to do. And so when he started dipping into the timber, I panicked because I didn't range that. And so now I'm like trying to range it, trying to move the camera, trying to range it. Couldn't get him to range because he was behind a few like small saplings and stuff. I finally got a range and it was 28 yards and I pulled back and I shoot a single pin sight with one pin or uh, set at 25 yards. And I just, I just held low and let it go. I, in hindsight, after I thought about it, it's like I had more time with that deer than I thought I did. I didn't need to rush it. And that was just what happened. Like it, I got shook. I panicked because mm-hmm. it was one of those things like I'm in Iowa. I see this great deer and now I'm going to screw it up. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. You know, the second one was just, um, I hit some brush that I just didn't see, you know, and, it knocked, and it knocked my, my arrow down mm-hmm. and it was at 28 yards too. It was the same yardage. <laughs> And I had time. And then the third time I saw him, I couldn't get drawn because he was looking at me. Yep. And then he just and he just yeah. backed off. And that was the three deer, same deer three times? Yeah. <laughs> same deer three times. During the rut, which is crazy, right? That's remarkable that you got set up on him three times. Well, it's funny because I told John, like, after I licked my wounds and got over, like, because there was a moment there where I was like, man, I'm just going to get back to Pennsylvania. I was like, I'm pissed off, whatever. And then I finally, like, you know, called myself some choice words and some names and was like, eh, you need to buck up. And I told John, I was like, I'm going to kill that deer. I was like, I'm going to find him again. And he's like, dude, he could be like five miles from there. It's the rut. You know, I was like, nah, I was like, as much sign it's laid down in there, I was like, he's got to still be there. Like, I can't imagine that he would leave that, you know, that area. And, and I saw does while I was set up too. So I knew there were does in the area that were by themselves. So I knew that there were does in the area. All his sign was there. I was like, he's got to still be there. And then, you know, two days later, I find him, you know, again. And then I had... You know, I ended up having four encounters with that deer. Three days in four, a row, actually. Fourth one was fatal. Well, or no, no it, was a different it, deer. it was a different deer. Yeah, it was a different deer. I bumped the deer that I killed. I ended up bumping on that scout the last, the next, the last day. I bumped him out of that little, that bedding area and then set up on it, tried to bump and dump. He didn't come back that night. I knew I was going to have a good wind the next day. So I came back and hunted that spot that the following day in the afternoon. And he came through at like 3.30 on the last day. Was that the tenth day of your hunt, or eleventh day, or fifteenth? Fifteenth day. The last day. The last hour and a half of the last day. Gosh. Well, See, kudos, I mean. kudos for you for sticking through that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. thanks. You and yeah. I had talked on the phone a couple times, you know, throughout the course of that two yeah. weeks, and it's like, I know how mentally tough you are. I know how hard you hunt. I know how 
physically hard that you hunt and how, how you get after it. There's not very many people probably in the world. I'm not going to say <laughs> not very many people that I know because there's probably only a couple. But there's not very many whitetail hunters across the country could put themselves in that hunt for 15 days, go through those situations, <laughs> and three then times. kill two hours before last light on the last day. Yeah. And was that your personal best? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was the biggest deer I've ever killed. You know, I didn't, I never even scored him. You know, uh-huh. it's like I, never, I didn't even score him. We didn't have time to. <laughs> it's yeah. like I was literally leaving at four o'clock. I literally packed the reason I hunted the afternoon and not any earlier than that was because I packed up camp, put everything out on the porch of the cabin I was staying at. And was basically like, I'm going to hunt. If I kill something, I'll have to figure something out. I was like, but otherwise, it's like, I got I to come home, basically sleep, and then get up at 4 a.m. and start driving back to Pennsylvania. And so it was literally, I killed him. You know, the first thing that went through my head was like, it was just, you know, I was just, I, I, at that po- point, I was like a, you know, a, a beaten inmate, you know, <laughs> where I was like, I, I let the arrow rip, and I was like, uh, I was like, I missed again. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> just like I was expecting that I'd missed. And I thought I did for like a moment. Like I got nervous because like he jumped. Like he didn't like, it wasn't like the big mule kick. He just like jumped and he bound like 20 yards and he stopped and he turned around and he looked at me. <sighs> or he looked back. He didn't look at me. He was just like looked around like, what just happened? You know? And I was like, go down, go down, go down. You know? And I'm like, and he wasn't wobbling or anything like that. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And he starts walking away, and he had his tail tucked, like, really tight, you know, and I was like, and as he was walking away, it was, like, really slow, you know what I mean? I was like, I was like, okay, so he's hurt, you know what I mean? I was like, so I'm going to back out, you know, give him some time, let him get away from here, I'll back out, and, you know, give it a couple hours before it gets dark, and I'll see where I can find good blood, and if I have good blood, maybe I'll try to go find him, if not, then I'm just going to back out, and I'll have to, like, find him the next morning and just go home late, you know, and, um, uh, I ended up getting down. I text John, you know, a picture of the arrow. It was good blood, but it was almost like the like it was wiped off. It was really weird. And so John was like, eee. you know, and I had the same feeling too. And then I was fine. I was went to find blood, and I found like a little bit. I found a little bit more. But you know how it is when you're in a tree and you make a shot and you try to find a deer and you landmark something like this is the last place I saw him. But when you hit the ground, it like looks completely different, different right? It's always yeah. right. And and I know that that you find a landmark. And so I followed it for like a little ways, but I thought he went to the right. And so I started bearing around like the, the end of this ridge looking for him and there was no blood. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like there's no blood. And I was like, you know what? Let me walk over here to the left a little bit. I was like, maybe I'm just like screwed up. And then all of a sudden I just find like puddles with like bubbles in it and stuff like that. And I looked and he went like 40, 50 yards. Ooh, yeah. You know what I mean? It was just like just down over this little knoll before where I couldn't see him, you know? And, 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 and there he was. So I text Johnny, helped me drag him out. It was a brutal drag. It wasn't fun. <laughs> so I might have to start taking a Western pack from now on because that was not a pleasant, a pleasant drag. I think I gutted him out at like five o'clock or something like that. And then started dragging him right away. PM? AM? Uh, PM. Okay. So it was starting to get dark and then John was going to come over to help me, but I was like, finish your hunt, you know, and he, his lease is a little ways away from where I was hunting. And I was like, finish your hunt and then, you know, let me know when you're in the area or whatever. And I sent him a, a, a pin. I started dragging him out and like, I got him out through like the brush, like this clearing where you could drag him on like this, like old two track or whatever. And that took forever. And I hiked back to the truck and met John, dropped off my stuff. And then, and it was just like, it had 
it had snowed and had froze and then it had warmed up so everything was just like greasy mm-hmm. you know what i mean so it's like i was covered in mugs it fell fell down trying to drag him i mean i started dragging at five and john and i didn't get him back to the truck until like seven thirty seven forty five yeah something like that so it was like a good you know two plus hour ordeal to get him out of the woods so a little over a mile i think Snap. in total Snap some photos and hit the road. Pretty much, snap some photos. <laughs> photos. We went to John's buddy's uh, taxidermy shop, dropped him off, did all the paperwork. He and I went to his place, recorded a podcast about it, <laughs> and then <laughs> I drove and back to the cabin. I went to bed at like one thirty, got up at four a.m. and started driving back to PA. Oof. Yeah, and left. They, I mean, the guys at you know, it's Old Barn is where I had the taxidermy and stuff done. Those dudes are good dudes. So like, shout out to them because. I didn't have time to, I like to butcher my own stuff, but I didn't have time to. So they literally butchered him and froze everything and actually shipped me all the meat back too, which was, they don't usually do that, but that was super cool of them since I was from out of state and yeah. didn't have time to do it. And he's there. I'll get him back sometime this spring some, or summer, you know, mounted and they'll ship him back to me. So that's cool. What'd you get? What kind of form did you get? I don't even remember. Like, <laughs> you know, a whirlwind. Yeah. I was just like, I remember I was looking at the wall and I was like, I like that one. And they were like, all right. Yeah, so, Semi sneak left. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. I was just, I was so tired and just so beat. It was, you know, after 15 days Gosh. and then trying to drag him out. But, you know, it's, uh, it, it, the one thing that was cool about it, beside like the experience and all that stuff was, you know, there was a lot of guys like, you know, like you guys and stuff like that. And, other buddies we know, like Johnny Stewart and Greg and those guys. Like, I got a bunch of texts from those guys. It's like, hey, man, keep grinding, keep yep. grinding. Yep. You know what I mean? Keep going. You know, that we're following along. And, you know, a couple of them said what you said, where it was like, dude, I couldn't have done what you what you did yeah. or whatever. And then from guys that I have a lot of respect for. So it meant a lot, you know, that that those guys were recognizing that, you know, I was, I was putting in the work. And, you know, and, uh, yeah, you know, I don't know, man. It's like, I don't know that I would have wanted it any other way, to be honest. You, you got know. your money's worth out of that tag. Damn 15 right I did. full days. <laughs> you know, Damn right I did. Uh, how much, think of how much you progressed during those 15 days. Imagine if you did shoot him on that, nailed, nailed, nailed that deer on the first, first shot. Yeah. I mean, well, I had a, I had a contingency plan, you know what I mean? It's like if I, if that had happened, I was actually, uh, headed down, uh, with Greg and those guys, uh, uh Godfrey, mm-hmm. uh, they were in Missouri. And uh-huh. So I was going to head down to Missouri okay. and hunt with those guys for like the last because I had two weeks off, yeah, you know, and Missouri's an over-the-counter tag, so I was just going to pack up my down. stuff, jump in the truck, and head to Missouri and, yeah. and go hunt some public land in Missouri. But we'll uh, we'll do that another time. It, I needed all 15 on this one. <laughs> Mad but, respect. Yeah, it was uh, it was cool, man. So looking forward to getting after it with this fool this year Yeah, in, in the years to come. so I'm excited to see this year play out from afar. <laughs> you can join us, man. You can come join I've in the tried. I, I try every month. I every, never say yeah. a hard no. I say, yeah, all right, yeah. yeah. But like every time I talk to you, like, man, I don't know. <laughs> so I never get a firm answer from you. So I can't, I can't provide one as well. Right. That's true. So. That's true. Well, you got a firm answer now because I'm going. And I'll give you, <laughs> the, I'll, give you I'll give you the dates. <laughs> when you go, no. Yeah. Um, well, I think this year, didn't we talk about planning a little bit different? Like going a little, well, I know we want to try to go in October or something, but didn't we talk a little bit about maybe going later in November, like the second week versus the first week? But I mean, uh, you have trail cameras out the wazoo down there, so it's like we probably just need to listen to what the data tells us from the years past. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I have so many conversations about that place and about that deer, and like I have so many different plans. Like I don't even. That's who, what I'm who saying. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? 
Who knows? Right. Yeah. Well, what's your plans for this year, man? I will be in Illinois hunting hunting deer. Hunting deer. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I know. Any, you know. any out of staters? Um, it all depends. I mean, I always I toy always toy around that toy around that idea. I mean, we've talked about possibly doing some different you know hunts, but mm-hmm. our plans change every two weeks. But I can guarantee you, I'll be hunting Illinois. And yeah. I'll guarantee I'm trying to try to get better every year. So that's right. that's really what it boils down to. Yeah, it's. I think that for me, it's like the out of state thing is like, um, I don't. Know, I I just I love hunting out of state. Like I feel. Can like- we bring up the conversation that we had? I think last weekend, though. Sure. The World Whitetail Slam. Oh camp. yeah, <laughs> first ever. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I put this out on the Truth Show or whatever. I might as well, you know, screw myself here too. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> It's not a big, you know, it's, I'm a normal dude, you know, has a normal job and stuff yeah. like that. And, um, you know, one of, I mean, I love whitetail hunting. I'm passionate about it. And it's, I, you know, I'm not one of those guys. I'm honest where it's like after that two week trip, like I was good. Like I needed, I needed a couple of days. I'm not one of these guys that says I can hunt every day for 20 years yeah. straight. It's like, right. I can't do it. You know, it's I like, don't know if I believe those guys fully either. I think they're full of shit. To be honest <laughs> with you. It's like, you gotta have some type of like human interaction. Like I literally on that trip was alone all the time, which was good it was also bad. Like some of those days it would have been nice to have someone, you know, John actually tried. He would like, Hey, why don't you come over? I'm like, no, I'm pissed off. Stay home. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. So my goal is, you know, I like, I do all DIY out of state, you know, public land hunts is, is, is the deal. And, you know, in PA hunt public land, but I want to kill a respectable whitetail in every big buck state, you know? So I haven't kind of whittled down exactly which states those are, but it's all the ones you would kind of think of. Let's you know? start. Let's just start. Let's let's work through the list. You already sure. have one in PA, right? You have one in Iowa, right? Now what? Ohio. I have one in Ohio. Ohio. Three states. Yep. So, so then, what are the some? I'm guessing Wisconsin. So we'll we've mapped yeah we've mapped, mapped out, out the, the next five, five years, years yeah. right? So it's, what does that look like? So it's Kansas, mm-hmm. uh, Kansas, Nebraska. Was Nebraska one of them? Kansas, Illinois, Nebraska, Missouri. And there was one other one I can't think of off they, the top of my head. Virginia. Yeah, we talked about Virginia. We talked yeah. about Wisconsin. I'll be in Iowa one of those years. So there's like an off year. That yep. would be the Missouri. And that's the year I'll go to Missouri. Um, yep. Yeah, I think that's pretty much yeah, that was, the those were the, Those were the, the next list. five. Yeah. Like, that was the, the short list of five that it'll be the. Do you think you'll hit five for five on that? I mean, no one bats a thousand. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> um, you know. I'm going to say, yeah, because I'm going to try to, you know what I mean? Like that's, I mean, you're not going to, if you don't try to, you know? And and so, I mean, that'll be the goal going, you know, I'm not going there to sightsee, you know? So, um, the goal would be to stick an arrow in something in each of those States. You know, what my, what my hope is, is that I can some years start to double up on States, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe I don't miss in Iowa on day six and I do get to hit Missouri to give myself an opportunity to get to a two week span. Yeah. Yeah. To do a two for, um, you know, I, I definitely, you know, then after that, I don't know where I'll go, but like, that's the goal is to kind of do that. And I'm kind of terming it the, the DIY slam, yeah. you know, all public land DIY slam and do it in every big buck state. And when I say big buck, it's really like, you know, Pope and young are better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is really what it is. Cause if you're hunting public land and there's places and you're, you have a set number of days to get it done. It's like, you know, a lot of States I probably won't go back to after I kill, you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, I'll probably be off the list and I'll be on to the next and, you know, and that'll be it. But. That'll be cool when you uh when you're an old guy and you have that body of work and like that's Virginia, that's blah 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 and have all the different stories rather than this is the back forty that I hunted twenty yeah, years in a row. Yeah. You know? And then my daughter sells all my shit in a state stale. <laughs> yep. <dead>. Like <laughs> that's really 
<laughs> I was I'm friends with the local state's attorney in our county, and I shot a deer, and he's like, "You getting that mounted?" And I was like, "Yeah." And it's like, I don't know why it's gonna be in the state sale. He like, told you that. I told him that. He's oh. like, "Yeah, you're right." Like, yeah. That's the thing. It's like the most coveted thing for us, and even whitetail yeah. cribs. You go yeah. there, and that person is. That is what they're most fired up about. Like that yep. is like the first thing. Like, oh, you got to come in here. Then they die. Yep. And then it doesn't like. That's it. Yep. It either goes Sad. to state. I mean, I like. I mean, and then it gets all old and weird, which I think looks cool. Like I like to go to like antique places and look at like the old mounts that before they knew how to do taxidermy and they just looked ugly and ridiculous. Like it's got a skinny neck like yeah. this and like a huge head like yeah. this. Yeah. I just think that stuff's cool. Like really bad taxidermy is interesting to me. There's a Twitter like, account for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like there's a store for that where I live. Like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean that's the goal. You know, we'll see. I mean, there's other hunts in there. Like this year, I'm going to Colorado for elk and bear hunt. You know, so that'll be that'll be cool. Um, I still want to hunt big game. I got an invite to Canada to hunt right outside the bow zone. Nice. Um, I got someone who was like, you know, I'll uh, you know sponsor you or whatever or bring you uh-huh. over or whatever. So. Um, I'd, I want to add that cause that would just be a really, really yeah, cool hunt. That'd be really cool. Um, I do have my, my big bucket list hunt is, is my wife won't approve it is I want to, I want to hunt grizzly with a bow. Like that's like Oof. the thing that I want to do. Um, but you know, she's like, not until our daughter is old <laughs> and, and out of the house. And, right. You know, so, which I can respect that, but it's just, you know, and I don't know that I'll ever get to do that. It's like an expensive hunt. I mean, it's like a $30,000 yeah. hunt to go do something like that. Cause I'd like to go to Kodiak Island, mm-hmm. you know, and do it where the, you know, they have the biggest brown bears or whatever, but, um, you know, they're aggressive animals. I just like the idea that you're not the only one hunting, you know, I think Ooh. that that's interesting. So to say the least, <laughs> Yeah, but you know we'll see. I've been to Alaska once. It's just really cool, really cool country, and you know I look forward to getting back. But the the DIY slam is my thing. Like that's that's one thing I really want to really want to do, and I'm going to make an effort toward it. I'm excited to follow that. Yeah, follow that along. That's really cool. And I I think you're the first to coin it. So if anyone tries to steal it, I think you're the first to coin it. Yeah. Do you think that's fair? Has, have you heard? No, nope, never. That first time I own it. Set it right here. Yep. We're gonna, we're gonna put it in the mail. Yeah. Mail it to myself. Yep. Reg- Reg- <laughs> Registers trademark. Right. Yeah. We'll see it on someone's YouTube channel in like a week. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. It'll be the. You'll have to call him and yell. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Woo. <laughs> 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 oh yeah. Getting frisky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, you know that's the that's that's the plan. I don't know what's uh. What do you think, man? You think you think I'll pull you think I'll pull it off? Well, I wouldn't bet against you. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's a vote. And of I'm gonna be a part of it. So I'm, it's like <laughs> damn right you like are. Quarter mine. That's I'm right. Just tagging We're, along, right? You know, maybe you'll steal it. <laughs> maybe you'll do it before me. If he does it before me, I'll be pissed. <laughs> well, what do you have right now, Ohio? Yeah, I've never killed a buck out of state, other than West Virginia. That doesn't really count. What was it? It is a different state. How does it not? That's count? rifle season. Oh, okay. Not killing well, it was like deer. Pope and Young level? No. Okay. No, it's like the uh, Hills Have Eyes on Slaughter. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's just our family thing. You know, we go down. We go down for Thanksgiving, and it's just like family tradition. You just, you know, go down, hang out with the locals, and kill whatever you see. <laughs> I mean, it's it's part of that region. I mean, Pennsylvania is kind of the same thing, like because gun season comes in, and that's the way it always was growing up. It was like that was a big deal. Like yeah. you shot your, you had dinner, then you went out and shot your guns after like 
you'd eat Thanksgiving around noon, right? And then you would go out and shoot guns after that, sight your guns in. No one picked their gun up any other time during the course of the year mm-hmm. except that day. And then you go out and you hunted on Monday was the opener. And you yeah. go down to camp on like Saturday and spend Saturday and Sunday at camp and start hunting on, on nice. Monday. And it would just be the fling lead. Yeah. You know, that's how how it went. You know, I remember as a kid watching um, you know, hearing bullets ricochet past me or watch him hit the dirt like out in front of me or whatever Ooh. yeah i mean we Dang. owned our own land too yeah you know what i mean it wasn't like yeah. it wasn't like i was out in the middle of like you know the heaviest pressured piece of public or whatever but it's just that was how much hunting pressure there was around my house it sounded like a war zone the legitimate orange army legit yeah it was um yeah i was i was part of it i mean <laughs> i had this whole like this whole like total orange like jumpsuit like yes. thing like right you know, it was like it was just that was you know it was warm and blaze orange onesie yeah yeah, yeah. my dad was like here you put one of these on you know and that was that was what I wore and it's, I wore it for years and that was I mean that's how I knew that's how I knew hunting you know and that's how I got introduced you know you know but you're in a blaze orange is there a little bit of snuff in it you're good yeah I mean I was ten I was chilling you know it's like <laughs> crack open a Milwaukee's best right pack. people listening are like what the hell just happened I'm like where's this guy going you know I don't know that I can share that story there's here, a, but there's a lot of inside stuff going on in this yeah. podcast yeah yeah sure. come out to one of the one of the shows yeah. you know at some point and see us at the at one of the booths whether yeah. it's at if I come to Deer Asic you know maybe yeah. with you guys well, or whatever we uh we're working out getting booth space for Total Archery Challenge Seven Springs I don't know if you'll be out I'll there be that there. way yeah yeah yep. maybe we'll do a chill out and we can hear the Clint Campbell star yeah, stop, stop by the total archery challenge booth and you can hear my 10 year old chewing stuff <laughs> and man size work story insert a token get a Clint story yeah exactly there's there's a bunch of them you know <laughs> you can help fund my DIY slam how's that there perfect <laughs> perfect uh, yeah where are we at how we doing oh we are just a little over an hour hour and six, six minutes something like that Anything else you want to cover? This is kind of a, a co-podcast here. Yeah. We're going to go live on both platforms. Yeah, I want to know. So I want to know. So the one thing I need. I've known you guys for a long time, right? I, I've been using tra- the trail cameras for for as long as almost as the company has been, been yeah. around, right? Yeah. The one thing I still struggle with is late season trail camera placement. Hmm. Like I just, I either there are no deer where I'm putting my trail cameras yep. or I'm incredibly bad at, at placing them for late season. Every other time of the year, like I'm good. Mm-hmm. It's just late season. I cannot get a single deer like that's worth going after yeah. on camera. As far as like daylight movement or just inventory, inventory in general, just both across the board. Really? Like, yeah, I mean, I struggle to get animals on camera in general once Thanksgiving ends for the Love, most part. All Let I me jump is, in on this. Yeah. The I guess scrapes outside of the doe bedding areas where I'm at, there's a lot of this isn't every farm either, too. There's like one or two farms that this works on where it's of high deer density. Finding that magical scrape outside of a bedding area, doe bedding area. I have that buck I killed this year, the year prior, I had that bully buck come in. Let me back up. He had a scrape, tail tuck, mature white tail, and then right after that, that Bully nine pointer came in, worked the scrape the same exact day, and this was January. Mm-hmm. And then earlier that morning, I had like three and a half year old bucks sparring, and then I had a like a yearling doe come and hit it. So right there, that tells you high deer density area. Keep in mind of those 
doe bedding areas and those magical scrapes because they're still active and you know maybe those those yearlings are actually going into heat then and obviously it's bringing in a lot of big deer that's that's been pretty helpful i guess um that's the most visual example i have in having that sequence hmm. and that particular one and i set up on there actually too knowing that and it was a situation where i did a hanging hunt off that doe bedding area and I got set up. I could see the does bedded on one ridge. I could see the bucks bedded on the other ridge. Right before dark, the does dropped down. Ping, 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 ping. And then right. the bucks. And then they kept getting bigger. And then the biggest one never showed up. But that right. was that was a really one of my, I guess, more favorite hunts in the last right. two years. So am I giving up on am I giving up on scrapes too early? Do you think? I mean, mo- ninety nine percent of them are are dead, and you would be wasting your time. But I guess finding that finding, finding that, that one, yeah, and that I think that probably correlates more to deer density than anything else. Right, and I think I think some of that I think I'm up against is that I am yeah. a little bit challenged with some deer density in certain spots, given that it's it's all public for the most yeah. for the most part, and they've been just hammered. Yep. you know what I mean after yep. gun season in in my area. So I'm probably I'm probably just in the wrong spots. To be honest with you, like I'm probably not. Sorry, that advice is <laughs> right. Is helpful then for, for no, no, no. Though. It is because I think I'm just thinking of like one parcel in in particular. It's like I think I just need to, I think I just need to spend more time finding where the hidey hole is mm-hmm. after gun season. Yep. Because I think that's the part that I'm missing. I think that that's the one of the downfalls. Honestly, is like the way that I've been. I kind of transitioned to hunting. I think what it, I think what it really helps me at is that rut pre-rut kind of time frame i think what i haven't figured out yet is how to leverage it during late season mm-hmm. that's the part that i haven't quite figured out how to use it you know because i know like zach and those guys from the hunting public like they still hunt that way yeah all year round you know i just i haven't got there yet to where it works for me for late season like what do you think man because i mean all the cameras i have are on, on public like is there places that you prioritize and i know you like to keep your camera set too i do um I still have the majority of my cameras. If I'm going to set a camera specific for late season, there's a food source there. But the majority of the time, 90% of those photos that I'm getting are after shooting hours. Mm -hmm. So it's still trying to, okay, this deer's showing up 30 minutes after daylight. Like, Where can I go and hunt him during the day? So I'm still taking those pictures and trying to relate that to movement back to bedding or security cover or thermal cover or whatever wherever I think that deer is actually laying his head during the day. Um, but to be totally honest, like we haven't had a whole lot of success like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so, so Cameron, uh, we have Cameron here, here filming this, um, a couple different cameras running here. And his question to Clint is where is Clint placing these cameras where he's not, finding success in the, in the late season. Yeah. So on the one piece, it was actually off of, off of a food source. Um, and I checked it shortly after I had placed it cause I went in and hunted it and there wasn't anything showing up. Um, now truth be told, it's been sitting now for almost a month now and I haven't, I haven't looked at it. So I could have something on camera. Um, on the one piece, it was a near right off a bedding area where I did have a good buck on camera earlier in the year. And I had him there pretty consistent through um, through October and November, and then just vanished. And he wasn't the only deer I had on camera. You know, I was getting plenty of does and stuff on camera there too. And then all of a sudden, they vanished. You know, so that was right outside of a bedding area. Another one was actually outside of a food a food source as well. Same kind of thing. It it dried up, but I think that was more because that particular food source dried up. 
Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the the, the culprit right. there. I think what I'm doing is I think I'm not I'm I'm still kind of keeping them placed in certain like pinch points and funnels and stuff mm-hmm. like that and, and betting where I probably need to move them out of those out of those locations. I think the other thing that you mentioned when you mentioned food source, it just made me think of something is that and I know you and I have talked about this a little bit. I think what will help me with placement during late season is and it's just something I need to get better at in general is identifying those non-dominant primary food sources, right? So like when I say that, it's not like, yeah, you can find an acorn tree that maybe dropped late, like a white oak. Maybe there's some left on the ground, but if you had a wet year, then they're rotted, then they're they're no good. Right. Or find the cycle of the red oaks because they'll drop mm-hmm. every 18 months. So they're usually off cycle from white oaks. So it's like you find that if there's any of those around. But then it even goes to like, like species of browse and stuff like that. And that's where it's like, I wish I was a, like a biologist or like Mm a, a forester or something like that, because those are just things like that. I don't, that I don't know. And when you talk to a guy, like, I know you guys just had, um, um, uh, Johnny Stewart on mm-hmm. that guy's a late season beast. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And he just like, and he can pick That's his out, favorite part of the season. Oh yeah. It's, it's completely his favorite part of the season. And Greg, well, Greg loves early October before the rut and he loves late season. And those two dudes are just really good at finding food sources and knowing what the food sources are in the places that they're hunting that yeah. aren't the dominant right. sources. Right. And that's the part that I need to spend more time with because I think the guys who get it done in those hard to, hard to hunt times a year are really really good at, yeah. at picking out those types of things, mm-hmm. and that's just something I've not spent a lot of time with. I think that that's a skill set that you you can learn I, easier probably than the instinctual things of getting how far can you get in, you know on a bed or something like that. That's just nature, right? It, well, it just comes down to prioritizing it, right? You know what I mean? It's like you know going back to the biology class of learning tree species and plant species mm-hmm. and in. And just talking to dudes like, you know, guys from the QDMA, yeah. you know what I mean? That just, yeah. you know, yeah. that can give you a lot of that information. Yeah, but that's, I guess that's just hard knowledge versus instinct. Right. Yeah, it's, there's no, like, it's there's, not sub- it's, non-subjective. Yeah. You can learn right. this in a book. Right. Yeah. How close you can set up on a buck, you cannot learn in a book. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. It, and I think certain times a year, like the one outweighs the other. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's... uh October is a little easier, even if you are relying on food, because, you know, you either have a primary ag food source, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're going to have, you know, acorns that are going to be like, that's what's going to take them away from that primary, yeah. right? So you find those and then you're and you're good to go. It's when that stuff starts to dry up, right? And then like the instinctual part of like what their, you know, scrape and rub activity are telling you or whatever starts to go away. Then I start to grasp at straws, yep. you know what I mean? And I'm right. like, and that to me is like, if I'm being completely honest, I don't, I'd love to get you guys perspective on this, but like for me, it's like, I won't feel like I'm an accomplished whitetail hunter until I can consistently kill deer in early October. Like that's, right. yeah. that's kind of my, like, yeah. because right now, like all my success has been around that pre rut and rut time mm-hmm. period and I'm hunting hard. Like, don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, but like, you know, guys like Greg, most of his deer have all been yeah. killed in early October. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think Eberhardt, a lot of his have been killed in early October as well. I think Infault has a bunch that have been in early October. Yep. Cody kills deer in early October. Mm-hmm. You know, Andre kill, you I know, I'm just looking at guys that get it done in a big way, and I'm like, they kill a lot of deer in early October. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who is hunting deer similar in the fashion that we are, and they want to do it with purpose, like you don't want to leave anything to luck. Yeah. And I don't want to say that everyone, every, every everybody that's killing deer during the rut, like, 
they're doing it because of luck. But when you're doing it, when it's on the deer's terms, it's it's a little bit different mm-hmm. because their their senses are still um, still keen. They're not walking around like zombies. I mean, I've had encounters during the rut where you could have you could be drenched in gasoline and that, and that deer wouldn't care. Right. You know what I mean? So, um, I, and I think as people or personalities in the industry, guys, I guess, um, what am I trying to say here? Your peers, mm-hmm. your industry peers, I think that us as a group kind of awe when guys are killing deer on a consistent basis For sure. in, in early October. In your guys' yeah. mindset, what is that, what is that line? Where is early October no longer early? I mean, for, for a date. I, I'm just going to say that the 25th, if like you're killing deer before the 25th of October every single year. Yeah. Like I was actually even going to go earlier. Yeah. I was, was actually gonna, I was going to say the 15th. Like, so before like scrapes even really come into play. Cause to yeah. me, it's like I see like scrapes really starting to open up around that like 15th and Agreed. later time frame. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like I look at it almost like the first two weeks of October. Like if you're consistently killing deer the first two weeks of October, and I would probably push a little further past that, but that's always kind of been my like line of demarcation. Now my season also comes in like the 19th, between the 15th and 19th of September. Okay. So I've already had a month True. where I live yeah. to do that. Now outside of that, in places that are opening October 1 or September 29th or whatever it is, then yeah, I'd probably say like right before that critical like pre-rut time frame mm-hmm. kind of hits that, that I would still consider that early October. But for me, it's like I've already had a month in the timber mm-hmm. at that point. So it's like I've had four weeks. I, if I'm going <laughs> to if I'm gonna make hay, I should have made hay already. You know what I mean? So that's just kind of how how I look at it. And I had encounters this year like in those in that time frame, like with with the two deer that I had on camera. Um, I had encounters with both of them, you know, in that between, I guess it was the 19th of September and the 15th of October and just couldn't, couldn't seal the deal. So I would have entered that club. Damn it. <laughs> Next year. <laughs> Next year. Yeah. So what are some things that you guys like for this upcoming year? Like I always try to pick something and work on and I know what my thing is this year that I'm going to like devote the off season to kind of working on or thinking about. What is it for you guys? Like, what do you guys try to pick something every year that you want to work on to get better at, or or learn, or add to your bag of tricks, or whatever the case is? Yeah, I want to kill a slob in the last ten days of October this year. Yeah, yeah, nice. I feel like I'm right on the cusp. The last few years, it's right on the cusp of killing a slob, and I just don't quite get it done. And I I think that's probably just from lack of growing up as a kid. I was a rut like wait till the rut. Like I would go out a few times with low expectations, and then I. Would really kick things on around Halloween, so now going in and trying to learn that is not a kid, right? I, yeah. I feel like I'm close. Right. I know I'm going to be able to get it done, but I'm just not quite there yet. My skill set's not quite there this you, year. I hope to do it. What do you think it is that you need to adjust to get there? I don't know yet. You don't know yet. <laughs> I don't know yet. Probably. You're be, like, listen, jerk. Yeah, if I knew, I'd yeah. already do. No, it. honestly, probably, <laughs> probably right. just be more aggressive, uh, right? And maybe just try to single out a deer a little bit harder than what I do. I I start bouncing around. Um, do you hunt a specific deer pretty often? Like, not super often, but I go in like a two or day, two or three day spurts where I'm hunting a specific deer, and then I'm okay. Like, screw this go on to the next one right uh this particular year year it was i found a scrape last year at postseason scouting there was a boone and crockett clean clean frame giant deer found a giant scrape i said if he's alive he's gonna hit this in late october i hung a camera there uh second week of october 
And I went and checked it, I don't know, like maybe the 18th or 19th. And sure enough, he was there that morning, straight 10, 175 inch deer. And then, so I go and set up, I hunt, 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 hunt. The one day I don't hunt, he's in there seven o'clock in the morning. (laughs) I go hunt, hunt. And then he's on another camera locked onto a doe October 24th. So right there, you know, it would have been honestly a, a fantastic deer. Just wasn't quite there, right in the same area. That night when I was hunting, you know, I hundred or you know probably 200 yards within him mm-hmm. tailing a doe and just didn't get it done so what could have i done differently I'll obviously be over there but i don't know right. right my instincts didn't tell me to be there so right long story short i'm doing a good job of finding slobs in late october and getting close but i just need to get better and i think that just comes with reps and talking and listening to people that get it done right at that time is there anything with like the weather or pressure or anything like that that you've seen that maybe you could start to key in on those fronts for sure in late october i mean they're yeah they're killer i think there's probably some other things that i haven't keyed in on yet but mm-hmm. um annual annual data with cameras keenan on scrapes i mean we created scrape week out of mm-hmm. the pure love that i have for late october right yeah <laughs> so <laughs> so like if there was you know i uh, yeah so scrapes definitely i <clears throat> i think and i key in on that and maybe that's a Maybe that's a shortcoming. I need to be looking at things of why they're going to that scrape and how do I get across that area to right. maybe not be set up on the scrape but still get him. So I, I don't know. Right. I don't know yet. Yeah, it's almost like figuring out what his like, route is to that scrape, you know, might be like the ticket versus on that scrape. Yeah, well. Is this a, is this right outside betting? This, so this, here's part of the problem too. I was hunting that scrape in the morning because that's when he was, he was coming off the hills. Mm-hmm. He was coming off the hills in the morning and going in the bottoms to you know i'm guessing he was feeding on acorns on the hill mm-hmm. and so dropping down there one morning i did bump a deer walking in it very well could have been him right and so basically he was going back to bed now here's the problem too i'm hunting. this is a small little parcel i know where that deer like i really feel like i knew where that deer was but that was on the neighbors and i couldn't hunt it so right. kind of playing with those rules make it a whole other challenge i i know there's Big woods is very difficult, but to have the freedom to move around and go with your instinct, that's an advantage where I'm sitting there holding my cards a lot of times and hoping for the best. And I hate to say it that way, but I feel like I'm in the game. Mm-hmm. I wish I could be 300 yards away from here, but he's crossed through here in daylight. Yeah. So let's try to you know test your luck. I think that's something that people don't recognize a lot because you'll you know a lot of people say hey hunting big woods is tough and it is like you know and and i like to hunt big woods it's one of the reasons why i like to hunt is because i do get to be aggressive and mobile and if i don't find them here i'll go over here and find something else but i do hunt small parcels fairly often too because i live in the suburbs of philadelphia and so Mm -hmm. a lot of the chunks that i'm hunting are like you know i've got one chunk that i hunt that's 25 acres i got another piece that's 60 acres i've got another piece that's like maybe 300 and i've got another one over here that's 80 you know so it's like it's a lot of small pieces and like so i i literally hunt those mobile still but it's like i hunt them mobile almost from my truck it's like i'll literally pull into a lot and if like it's on that 60 acre piece and it's like i see two trucks there or whatever i'm like all right well it's there's only two good spots i would hunt here in general anyway that my scouting mm-hmm. and hunting has told me to hunt so i'll just drive to the next piece Oh, they got cars there. All right, I'm driving to the next piece. Oh, there's no one here. It might be the worst piece I have, but it's the piece that there's nobody at, and that's that's where I'll end up being. Right. You know what I mean? And so, so I totally get you, man. It's like because you don't, you can't always go where they're at. Like you can look yeah. at the map, and you're like, I know he's right here. Oh yeah, you know and what you I mean? Correlate it, and I'm not saying I'd if I went in there, I'd go and slam dunk it on the first sit, but I know I'd have a better opportunity. Yeah, I had the same instance on like a family farm a couple years ago. I had this deer that was showing up uh, at night. Um, well, he would show up in daylight all summer, 
get him in the, in a clover field, and then he would um, right around like the fifteenth to the nineteenth of October, he would just like go completely nocturnal on our on our property, right? Like he would only I would only get pictures of him at night, and that would be and I would never see him on the hoof. And then finally, a late season hunt, you know, even though I suck at late season, just happened to see this deer during late season one year and started figuring him out. And I was like, I had him on a couple of different scrapes and I recognized, I thought he was bedded on the neighbors. And so there was one kind of area that I knew it was like a really good pinch point that he'd probably have to travel through. And late season, he would start showing up on cameras, like right at the cusp of like, of dark, you know what I mean? Like where if you could catch him, like. 50 to 100 yards into the timber, it's like you would have a shot, right? Mm -hmm. And so I set up, and I ended up seeing him. And then I was like, oh, I think I figured him out. So I hunted him three more days, and I had, out of the four days I hunted him, I had three encounters. All of them were worth, like, in 40, 50 yards. I just never got a shot opportunity. So I did a little bit more intel, you know, during the offseason. I saw him enter a field, was a glass, and watched him come into a field, how he came into this, like, one food source. Kind of told me where I thought he was bedded. And I looked at my father-in-law, and I was like, I'm going to kill that deer opening day. And he's like, yeah, the hell you will. <laughs> Set up for him. He showed up the opening day. It was, you know, October 1st. I hunted him in the evening. I was in the tree maybe two hours, and he showed up with a couple other deer. Wind swirled. One got downwind of me, busted me, and they were they were gone. But it was one of those things where it's like I knew he was bedded across this creek bottom over on the neighbor's piece, and I knew exactly where he was just based on the places I had him on trail camera. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing I could do about it. The, my best opportunity was to kill him where I was at, you know, and that was that was all I had. You That's know? all you can do. Yeah, and so from there, I never saw him. A buddy of mine ended up killing him, actually, that gun season. Mm. But So what's the thing you want to work on, man? Like, what's your what's your plan for this year of, of trying there's, to get better? There's, there's really two things. One is being more opportunistic and not being fixated on one deer. And I feel like that's something that outside of 2018 that I've done, 2016, 2017. You're going to do it this year, too. And I'm going to end up doing it this year, too. <laughs> no, the you won't, is, because I'm like, going to be there. <laughs> it's so, like, when, when you run as many cameras as we run, we we get a lot of big deer on camera. Yeah. and you Especially down there, dude. I mean, it's like, there's just stupid, big, you know. I mean, you get hammers. <laughs> careful. No, you know, I do not. There's but, no deer. Careful. <laughs> careful. <laughs> careful. Um. Jake for stock the, answer. For nope. the, Everyone at the show is like, hey, you getting a big deer on camera? It's like, Jake, I haven't seen a big deer ever. <laughs> These are all from Indiana. These are all from blank, blank forest. <laughs> right. Well, the, the area is a, it's a low density, low deer density area, but the age structure is really, really it's right. well. Yeah. yeah. So it's not uncommon. I mean, we've been down there for five years and I've had the opportunity to hunt. 190 inch deer 186 inch deer was actually killed by uh, a friend of ours and then 170 inch typical at least 170 inch typical 10 so it's like in my mind i'm always pinning myself mm-hmm. you know trying to be the best hunter that i can be and that's measured everybody measures that's different differently for me it's killing the biggest baddest animal that i have the opportunity to do so with right so it's kind of bit me in the butt the last, uh, you know, four out of the five years or whatever, you know, passing 130 inch deer or passing deer that I probably have no business passing. Right. You know? But that's just my mindset. And that's my personality. So not to be romantic about one deer is one thing that I do want to get better at. Want to. But it's so damn hard. <laughs> 
I actually told Jake, uh, I don't know if I should speak these words into <laughs> existence, but. Oh, boy. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm not going to say well, you made me. You made me put out the DIY slam, so let's, let's, I, let's come with it. <laughs> so you've seen, I mean, you know, you know yeah. the whole story. You've seen all the pictures and whatnot. Um, it's a, a world-class deer on public ground. Yeah. And I told Jake, I don't know if it was yesterday or today, that, that I wouldn't be upset if we go down there in two weeks. <laughs> And I find find the deadhead like him right. dead because then I know I don't have to hunt him. Right. That sounds like he's got you bad, dude. I know he's got you ate up, dude. There's <laughs> there's not uh, there's not more than a couple of days a week that go by without me thinking like, all right, how am I going to kill this deer? Yeah. Like we're going to kill him. Looking at he's going to be alive and cameras. One of, one of us is going to kill him. What I like to say is we're going to find his sheds. Like I'm going to find his sheds. <laughs> so I like to say. And then whenever I kill that deer this year, I'll give you the shed. <laughs> Constellation prize. Here you go. Here's no. what you hunted up. I mean, but no, whenever you and I decided that we were going to go back there, it was, it was. I think it was right after I got back from Iowa, we were talking. And mm-hmm. I was like, let's go ahead and think about when we want to go down and start scouting and looking around. Because what we had said was, is that, I mean, you know, folks out there, listen, like this piece is huge. Like there's so much land. Yeah, it's 66,000 acres. Yeah. And so this ridge system, like literally... The both of us, and even if we had two other people with us, whatever yeah. the case was, we would all be able to hunt those same ridge systems. It hunts giant the the entire time, yeah. and not step on each other at all. No, nope. you know, um, and that was one of the things you and I said was that we're going to hunt that kind of general area mobily, right? Not going to get stuck in a spot, but we're going to hunt that because there's a couple really big deer in that general area that kind of call that spot call that spot home. So that 170 inch 10, that was, yeah, S-Band, that deer's still alive. So we had him on camera and where I was hunting the other deer, their home ranges overlap. So you would have both deer in daylight, you know, in that area. So, um, yeah, there's a couple of really big, big deer that, uh, are still roaming around there, but you know, so that's one thing I want to work on. The other thing is, is something you brought up earlier and that is identifying, species of trees and relating that to food mm. and at what time of the year um I, f- I just feel like it's a lost art in today's whitetail world mm-hmm. there's not a lot of guys that do it and do it well and you know as we were talking earlier like that's non-subjective information like you just need to spend time learning it and then it's yours forever yep um and i feel like i'm better than most but i'm not nearly as good as what i should be yeah um, especially for a big woods guy, you know, that's, yeah. I mean, yes, I, I like, I can identify the difference between red oaks, white oaks. I do know some subspecies, um, but there's just, there's just so much more there that, uh, you know, I don't have a clue. Yeah. So I, and that's the thing for me. It's like, for me, like the hardest, like being, I mean, we can all relate to this because I mean, we all have jobs regardless of whether you work in the outdoor industry or not. It's yeah. like, you still have responsibilities to take care of. So you know, people think like, although these guys that own a truck camera company, they probably hunt seven <laughs> days a week. It's like, it's just not the case, right? Yeah. It's like most of the guys I know who work in the outdoor industry actually probably hunt less than I do a lot of, a lot of times, you right. know, um, just because that's the, that's the peak of your, your season too, as far as inquiries. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I really feel like, you know, until I learn that aspect of it that you were mentioning, I'm really shortening my season. Mm-hmm. Like I'm shortening it by like a good, for me, it's like my season ends where I live, like I think January 
29th or 25th this year. I forget. You told me what it was. I think it was like the 20th, 18th. Okay, statewide 18th. I'm in special regs. Was it special regs the same? A little longer, yeah. So I think it was like the 25th in special regs. So I get like almost the entire month of January to, to, to hunt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I'm really losing that, and I'm really – my capabilities really limit me to like right before Christmas kind of, right. you know what I mean? It's like, if I don't get it done by then, I'm really going to struggle because I just don't, I'm not sharp with those aspects of it that are going to help me get on deer in late season, whenever they are at their highest of alert. Right. And you know, the misnomer is, is that they got to go find food, but they don't like they go have to go find food when it gets really cold. Right. And that was something I learned from Don Higgins is that their bodies actually shut down and their metabolism slow, slow because yeah. it's it's evolution, right? Yeah. It's like otherwise they would die because they're just food's scarce at that mm-hmm. time. And so they people think that like well they got to go eat it every day. It's like no, they don't actually. It's like they actually eat less during that time of year, except when you get like driving nasty weather mm-hmm. and it makes them have to move. That's when you hunt them, and that's whenever you can go. Oh, there's this subspecies of whatever browse, you know, whatever, or there's this, you know elm tree stump that's still has sprouts on it like mm-hmm. that's you know it's like and that's a food right so it's like knowing that type of stuff and timing it right to to, to hunt yes. it um and that's the thing those are the things that i'm trying to to learn but my big thing for this year is actually ground hunting mm-hmm. is hunting from the ground that's like the yeah. thing that I'm, that I'm adding to my repertoire um just because i feel like some of those areas for late season where deer want to go aren't always the places that are the easiest to hunt from a tree because they're thicker, they're nastier, Mm -hmm. especially where I live where there's a lot of swamp and stuff like that. Um, I feel like they retreat to those areas uh, mainly because most people don't hunt from the ground. Mm -hmm. So there's likely not going to be a lot of hunters in that area, not just during that time of year, but ever, you know? Um, So that's why I want to add that to the ground or that to my game because I want to be as mobile as I possibly can be. I kind of stole something from Josh Prophet was that, you know, I, I want to be like a coyote. I want to hunt for opportunity, you mm-hmm. know, but that also means I want to hunt for opportunity whenever opportunity provides itself. Right. Mm-hmm. So not just for an animal, you know, not hunting a specific buck hunting like for a good buck in an mm-hmm. area. Right. But it also means hunting for opportunities that are like just out there in front of you to hunt in, you know, that present themselves that maybe don't have a tree to get into. I still want to be able to hunt those areas. And so, you know, especially walking in with a saddle, super light, throw a ghillie jacket on top of that, and then I'm I'm good to go from the ground or from from a tree, right. you know, whatever I need to do for that particular setup. I think it's a good strategy. Yeah. So, and I think it'll help, especially when we start talking about the DIY slam, Hell right, yeah. is that when you start going to those plain states, whether it's Kansas or whether it's Nebraska or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like it, you're really... If you can't hunt from the ground, you're going to have a real hard time in those, in those places. That's the beauty of the DIY slam. You can get it done in any environment. Yeah. So it's a, but the challenging part is, is that's something I can't work on necessarily in the off season. Right. It's like, that's just something you kind of have to do. Make and, it happen. In real time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I'm picking the brains of the Schefflers and the Farrenbaugh's and whatever, and mm-hmm. trying to talk to those guys about how they get it done and how mm-hmm. they approach and when they're worried about their wind, when they're not, when they're sticking to the shadows, when they're not, how fast they're moving, when they're moving slow, like all those, like there's so much to it, you yeah. know. Are you uh, able to apply that in the fly? Like those, do those conversations come back to you when you're actually out there making it happen? For me, they do. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. Like I don't know, like my brain just works that way. It's like almost like the way I remember things is like, um, like episodic, 
it's almost like a TV show mm-hmm. that happens in my head. You know what I mean? Like when things happen, you know what I mean? Like I'll see something like, I'll be honest with you. Whenever I walk through that CRP field in, in, in Iowa this year up on that draw, I stopped. And when I stopped there, I was like, I just clicked back and I was like, I saw Zach do a hunt almost exactly like this. And I was like, okay, let me stop for a second. And I kind of assessed it. But the way I screwed up was that classic mistake of a guy who hasn't ground hunted, you know, really ever other than gun hunting growing up was that the wind was directly in my face. That deer was bedded looking in my direction. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that was like, if I would have thought of that beforehand and I actually would have been like, you know what? Let me circle up the upside of this draw and basically come down almost parallel with him and try to get in behind him. I might not have a chance to kill him. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but that's just the, you know, a learning, a learning opportunity, you know, but yeah, I do think of those things whenever I see them, you know what I mean? It's like, it'll take me back to a conversation I've had with Chad or mm-hmm. with Greg or whoever. It's like, I'll see something and be like, Oh, I talked about this with so-and-so this is how I should approach this or whatever. Um, but you know, if it's not something that's second nature yet, I guess I should say certain things that become second nature, they just kind of happen, mm-hmm. but things that I'm still working and learning on, I will stop and kind of go through the mental Rolodex and try to figure, try to figure it out or try to get an analog to just figure out how mm-hmm. to approach it. Same way. Like you would take apart like a marketing problem or like a business problem. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like, I try to see if there's an analog somewhere that's that I can use, you know, and just go might not be exactly right, but you know, at least now I have an approach a framework. Yeah, exactly. So, I wish I had that. <laughs> I could, I get in the, I get in a hurry when I'm out there. Yeah, I've gotten better about about that of slowing down and and taking my time. And I think part of it is is just that mobile scout to hunt kind of approach because I'm really not trying to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's the that's that whole idea of like start without an end in mind. You know what I mean? If I don't have a place I'm trying to get, then the place I'm at's the best spot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So. It just, it's allowed me to kind of slow down and you'd be surprised like when you slow down, like you're walking and stuff like that, like it slows down your thinking, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You're able to kind of like think through things and dissect things a little bit better. Um, but what I do also do, and I'd, be, I'd like to get you guys perspective on this too. It's like, I've just gotten to a point to where it's like, I've second guessed myself out of situations so many times that I just, I made the wrong choice. I've stopped doing that. Like if I see something that makes me go, oh yeah, like I don't even. I don't think about it again. I just, I set up to hunt it, you know, because I've too many times mm-hmm. walked by a spot. It happened not this past year, but the year before I saw one of my target bucks near a scrape line mm-hmm. and I walked by some really good sign. I was like, Oh yeah. I was like, Oh man, let me keep going. You know? And I walked right by it and then ended up having the deer I wanted to kill on that camera while <laughs> I sat somewhere else yeah. that same day, you know? So it's, I just, I started when something tells me immediately, I don't second guess it. I don't think about it again. I just take action. I think that's the, the mental side of, to whitetail hunting to me is the hardest, the hardest part of, mm-hmm. you know, having confidence in what you're seeing and knowing like, Hey, this spot is right versus, yeah. okay, what if I go on another hundred yards? Maybe it gets better. Maybe mm-hmm. I go another 200 yards. Maybe it gets even better than that. So that it's like, uh, I go back to like the fear of missing out. Like, that's something, and you don't, and again, it's not something that you're going to uh, learn by reading or listening to a podcast or watching on a YouTube video. Like, you have to be able to go out and make the mistakes and correlate what you're seeing to some type of experience that's telling you, like, hey, this is right or this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, there's no other way to do it. Right. Yeah, I stopped, you know, I, I, 
I'll ask this question. I want to ask you both this because, I, you know, I in the past, I think I started making better decisions when I stopped giving a flying shit about what anyone else was going to think mm-hmm. about how I hunted or what I, the approach I was taking. Mm-hmm. And part of it was, and I've, I've been really transparent about this and I've talked about this, that like I felt a certain amount of pressure because I have a hunting podcast. Mm-hmm. And I felt like in order to validate my position, I needed to kind of do certain things and achieve certain things and do things a certain way. Even though like my buddies like the guys I'm sitting here with, like we're never, ever going to judge. Mm-hmm. Right. And I typically don't care what other people thought. I didn't care whenever I was in music, what other people thought. Right. But for some reason, like this one, I did for some reason. Right. Yeah. And it was like, once I shed that and I was like, you know what? Yeah. They can like it. They can not like it. They can criticize me for it. They can tell me that I don't know how, what I'm doing. Like, and I just really don't care. Right. Um, and once I did that, it was like, I started making much better decisions and started trusting my gut more and hunting more instinctively. So I'm curious, you know, if you feel the same way, and then I want to come to you because I'm curious if, and I'll I'll give you this part of the question for you so you can stew on it for a minute. I'm curious if you like, you're getting stuck on certain deer is any, is any relation to your position in the, in the outdoor industry. So go to Jake. I want to see what he says first about like, Reframe the question, so I so yeah. I sorry, I had twenty <laughs> questions right there. I've never done this before. <laughs> um, do you think being a brand, being a brand in the outdoor space in, in the position that you have, mm-hmm. right, and now also having media that goes along with that, right, with like YouTube, White Tail Cribs, the the mm-hmm. podcast, Trail Cam Radio. Do you feel like that adds any additional pressure when you hunt? that you need to achieve certain things or do certain things a certain way because of the position and the visibility you have in the industry? Um, I don't think it's necessarily that, but it's probably just more so the pressure I put on myself. Um, you put pressure on yourself in general. Yeah, and and I think even if that if I had a traditional marketing job where no one even cared, if, you know, what what you do on the weekend? Oh, I don't care. Right. I would still probably have the same equal uh, amount of pressure that I put on myself just I just want to kill big deer, like, right? Because I, right, right, you know, right. seeking the, seeking the uh, seeking the moment of truth when it all happens. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, maybe subconsciously. I mean, I think anyone that says it, that they don't, um, I think. Well, if it didn't happen, what would we talk about on the podcast? <laughs> like, there's right. I think. Or how would you answer all the questions you get at the booth? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how, like how many times do you get asked, like, "Hey, man, how was your season?" Good, and if every right? and every every year you're like I didn't see shit, you know what I mean? It's like it's a pretty short conversation, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? No, yeah, I I, I totally get the convers or, you know the question, but I don't, I really don't think I do, and I think it's probably just more self inflicted. Like I just want to grow as a hunter because I, you know, thoroughly enjoyed the process right. of it. And my favorite thing too, I guess, growing up, I would put more, I guess, uh, priority on schoolwork and like right. getting that stuff done, and so once I graduated, like, and these right. two things kind of merged together. Right. Uh, I guess it was like a rebirth for the love of whitetails. Cause now, you know, these are two and one versus, you know, school being the number one priority. Right. You mentioned something that was interesting, which is like, you, you like the process. Right. And I think no matter what it is you're doing, whether it's your job, whatever it is, whitetail hunting, like if you don't love the process of it, like you're just not going to like it. You know what I mean? Because there's, no, there's so much failure in it to get good at anything that you better enjoy trying to get better. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise you're going to have a pretty miserable existence in that space and probably burn out on it and yeah. end up, you know, doing something else. Yeah. And I, I guess too, I guess obviously we talked to all these people in that 
help shape how I hunt. But I'm I'm kind of this. Uh, <laughs> I'm just, just going to do what I'm going to do anyways. And a lot of times, right. I my dad obviously I grew up around him deer hunting. And we bounce ideas are all like back and forth all the time. It's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just going to do it. Like, what are you right. going to do? Like, you're going to go hunt the same tree again? Like, right. I'm going to go do something different. So I, I guess I'm a bit of a, yeah, like I, I enjoy hunting by myself. I enjoy doing my own thing and figuring out on my own Right at, at this point. And, and who's to say that that doesn't evolve at some point, but right now, yeah. Right. I don't know if that answered your question, but no, it does. It sounds like it's like, you don't, if there is, it's, if there is any additional pressure based on, having a podcast and an outdoor company and stuff like that, that it, you don't recognize it, that yeah. it's subconscious if, if it is, if it is there. I it, haven't reached my full whitetail potential. I know that. And that's where I want to be. Right. And I don't think you ever fully reach your whitetail potential, but I have plenty of room for growth through. And I see that more so than anything else. Like right. I want, I just want to grow throughout that process and, and figure it out on my own. Right. And obviously get better year by year. So that's, the most right. important thing to me right so what about you man coming back to you for the uh for the uh you know same question do you think you know your position in the space you know that you add extra pressure because of that and do you think part two of that is do you think that that somewhat influences your infatuation with a specific deer that you romance mm-hmm. a specific deer mm-hmm. you know each year you know, I, um, growing up, my whitetail youth is a lot different than, than 99%. I'll say it is. Yeah. <laughs> other whitetail hunters. So, um, you know, I hunt for myself. I don't hunt for anyone. You know, like, that's it. Like, I don't hunt for Clint Campbell. I don't hunt for Cameron. I don't hunt for Jake. I don't hunt for Exodus. Um, my fixation on big deer has nothing to do with, with the industry mm-hmm. it's you know i grew up i was able to kill a few big deer big big deer growing up and to me it's about just almost getting excited mm-hmm. and sometimes i feel like it's almost a disadvantage when you have those experiences as a youth and then you see 120 or 130 inch deer and you almost feel guilty about not being excited when you see those right you're having an encounter with it with a deer like that. Um, so that side of it has nothing to do with, uh, with anybody else. It's, it's, you know, it relates back to my youth and then people telling me like, Oh, you, you're never going to be able to duplicate that again. Right. Oh, you did it twice. You'll never do it a third time. Oh, you're never going to do that. So it's like almost self, I guess it, it is self-imposed as far as, you know, as Jake said, trying to grow as a hunter and, like I'm a competitive guy. Like, yeah. If if I kill if I, if I kill a deer next year, I'm gonna want to kill a bigger deer the following year. Right. And like that's just my personality. Um, as far as you know, the industry pressure as a as a whole, I felt like that was something that was really real for me. Like the first two years, right, of Exodus. Um, you know, coming from another industry starting a company and it felt like all eyes were on you as like brand owner, brand, brand founder, brand founder. And you know, you're spitting out and producing all this content. It's like, well, why should anybody listen to you if you're not killing, if you're not killing deer, but then, you know, after those first two years, you start to look at the landscape of the whitetail space and our, in, in Exodus as a brand. And it's like, no one remembers anyways. You yeah. could kill 
you kill a Boone and Crockett here two years ago, and you see that guy, maybe tell him a story at a trade show in 2016. Well, in 2018, he has no idea what happened in 2016. Like, right. They're clueless. Yep. So I'll, I feel like, like you said, outside of your uh, core circle of people, like no one really, no one really cares. Yeah. Um, now, if you start to kill Boone and Crockett deer every single year, I think you the your strength and depth of influence grows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think it only grows kind of in a positive direction. Like I don't think it's I don't think it's negative in, right. in any way. So um, the first two years, yeah, the the pressure again the pressure was real but i don't think it was from outside influence it's just it's in, just internal in your in your mindset and just being competitive it's you know right uh it, it was def- it was definitely there but now like i said i realize like no one really cares right um yeah i mean i definitely felt that for the first like probably two years of the of the podcast and then mm-hmm. finally it just kind of like went away um I think probably partially it was because, you know, I, when I moved back to PA, it's like I really didn't have any, like, hunting buddies necessarily. Mm-hmm. I was starting from scratch when I moved back. And so part of it was I was meeting guys, you know, like you guys or John or whomever, right? And it was like they don't know me from Adam, right. you know what I mean? And I just wanted to earn their respect mm-hmm. more than more than anything, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, it was what I wanted to do. It right. wasn't like, I didn't want to impress them with like killing a certain size of deer or whatever. It was more of just like, I wanted to earn their respect so that they knew that I was a dedicated white-toe hunter that was passionate about it and was willing to do whatever he needed to do to try to get the job done, you know. Um, and then what I realized was is like, those guys that I'm close with, it's like, well, they see that stuff, you know what I mean? It's like, and even if I, even if I didn't kill anything or whatever, it's like, they wouldn't think differently of me, but they would, if I quit 100%, right? yep. that's the difference. Right. And so, and they like, once I recognized that and recognized like the quality of the group that I had, mm-hmm. I was like, all right, all the pressure of like what I'm killing goes away. It's goes back to that process. Right. Am I, am I dedicated to the process? Cause if I am like those guys got my back a hundred percent. Here's the thing. People are going to talk shit. If 100%. You're deer, <laughs> Someone already not, stole DIY not, Slam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they're going to talk shit if you if you if you are killing deer. They go, oh, well, you're from X state or you hunt X yeah. farm, and I could do that too. And if you're not killing deer, then they go, you suck. You can't kill any deer. Like, there's no pleasing everyone anyways. Like, right, people yeah. are going to talk shit no matter what. So, yeah. if I, I could quit, like, this could go away. I'm still going to hunt the same exact way and still try to get better every single year. Right. That is what it boils down to. People are going to talk shit regardless. Yeah. And I'm still going to try to get better every year. Yep. No matter what. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know where the whole, like, talking shit thing comes from either. It, it kind of... A lot of egos, I think. I mean... Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I know where yeah. it comes from necessarily, yeah. but it's like, I guess I framed that probably, you know, poorly. It's like, I don't understand why there's a need for it, mm-hmm. really. You know, I'm not so... Like, I'm not interested enough in what other people are doing, like, what they're killing, what they're hunting. I mean, if they're having a great time and they're liking what they're doing and I'm like good on you yeah. you know what I mean like yeah. good good for you you know right. I mean I'm interested in what my buddies are doing just mm-hmm. because it's like you know care about the guys I, I spend time with and stuff like that and I want them to be successful and have the type of experiences they want to have and stuff like that but if Chad or you kill a big deer I'm super pumped for you but it does nothing for me mm-hmm. you know what I mean I'm like I'm jacked for you but it's not like I'm like wearing it like a badge of honor you know what I mean and if you kill if you don't kill anything just as well the same way. You I know what think I mean? some of that is just in our DNA 
like when you go back whatever thousands of years ago where you had hunters and you have gathers and you looked at like the alpha males typically as the hunters like i just think that's an alpha male kind of kind of trait like you want to be better than the next guy and but your competitive thing that i would say it's like if you're spending time thinking about what someone else is doing that's mm -hmm. time you're not spending doing what you could be doing to be better i would agree Uh, yeah i would i would totally agree but i think like the root of people talking shit about one another whether it's you know basketball court golf course deer hunting like i think that's 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 where it comes from right right trash talking is different Like you know what I mean? Well, like, that's true. You right. can like, like we, we can we, trash yeah, talk. we'll trash talk each right. other. You know, like that that'll happen. Like you know, if you like if you miss a deer, like I definitely caught some shit. You know what I mean? Like I'm not gonna <laughs> not gonna lie. You know what I mean? Like caught caught some shit for that, and it was expected. You know, and it was all in all in good fun. It wasn't like anyone was you know down on me or yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know, and I fully expected it. You know, but yeah, I didn't. I don't know. It's just it sometimes you know, the jealousy thing like confuses me a little bit. Like, I think what you said is really important. It's like, you know, if I were hunted on that farm, like people have, um, like to dig on like the hunting celebrities that have these manicured farms, like the Drury or like, the Lukoski's <laughs> or whatever. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, I've look, the way I look at it is like, if someone says like, if I had a farm like that, it's like, well, yeah, I, I agree. I think it is, you know, and I said it on another podcast, like, do I think that it is easier to hunt and kill a big deer on a farm like that? Yes. A hundred percent I do. Right. But is it easy to do the work in order to get yourself in a position to buy that farm mm-hmm. and create that atmosphere exactly. for yourself so you can go do that? It is not. So it's like, if that is something that you want to have, then you should be willing to put in the work to go have that kind yeah. of fortune. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because and if it's not that important to you, then then it's not that important to you. Then you shouldn't be bitching about what they're killing and how easy it is for yeah. them, right? It's like I make no bones about like, do I think a guy like, you know, take Greg Litzinger, right? For example, is a better hunter than maybe Lee Lakoski or the Drurys? As far as like, if you put them on a chunk of public land and say go kill a deer in New Jersey, who do I think would kill the deer first? I'd probably put money on Greg. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That doesn't that doesn't mean that they're like they're not that they're not good hunters. I just don't think they're as good as Greg. You know what I mean? All things being all things being equal, but that doesn't. I don't. I'm not jealous of their opportunity because they had to work their ass off to make that. Just like Greg has to work his ass off to try to kill deer on public land, mm-hmm. right? It's just a different type of work. And so I get really upset when people talk. I shouldn't say I get really upset. I'm not that invested in it, <laughs> but but it ticks me off you know what i mean when i hear people complain about it because i'm like you know you're spending time complaining when you when you could be getting better yeah or if that's something you really want instead of complaining maybe you should be thinking about you know how are you going to make additional money so you can save more so you can buy that farm that you want so you can have those type of hunting opportunities or you can continue to sit here and complain and and not kill deer the latter of the two does not work yeah (laughs) yeah exactly so i don't know it's just that's just something that kind of that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, mm-hmm. you know, poo-pooing someone else's success. But it's a good question. Yeah, um, we haven't talked about that before. Yeah. So, what do you, th- you guys think? Public land hunters better than than farm hunters? Mm. Well, well, here's the flip side of this. Would Greg have the same success if he had the farm in Iowa and he had to build it from scratch and he had to be a farmer, farmer Greg? No, I don't think John he would. Deere. I, I, go, I, go do some row crops. Like. I don't. I don't think. I don't think he would be right because you know I think when you talk about the guys like the Drurys or whatever, it's like, I mean, they know. So
so much about deer behavior and like weather patterns and stuff like that. Like if you put them on public land year one, I think Greg would win or Johnny Stewart, right? Cody, you know, Cody or Dan or just name any good hunter, you know, or guys who focus on public land. But I think you give the Drury's time and they would figure it out. Right. You know what I mean? Because I just think that they're that sharp when it comes to deer hunting. Right. You know what I mean? It's behavioral. It's like if you gave Greg the same amount of time to go on and build a farm, I'm sure he could. Right. Or but if, season one versus season one, I, I think on their home turf, they're probably going to win their own game. Right. Or if you swapped them and gave Drury's a season one on public and let Greg hunt their farm, I think Greg would probably kill the better deer. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, but I, I agree with what you're saying. You know what I mean? It's like they both have a strong suit that fits for what they do. But I think the Drury's would be able to apply it. Like guys like that that just know hunting and mm-hmm. understand deer behavior. Like you put them anywhere, they'll eventually figure it out, mm-hmm. you know, because um, they'll treat a chunk like it's their own. And that's how they'll break it down. No you doubt. Know? So, hell yeah. What do you think? I think it was a good sesh. Yeah. We're, we're two hours in. Woo. That might be. How long was the Dan and Stacy one? Was that our longest before that? It was like 90 minutes. <clears throat> right, Corey? Corey MMA? Oh, yeah. I fell asleep during that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's actually funny. So we recorded that last Saturday, and we're recording this six, seven days after that. Mm-hmm. Clint was still here. He was napping on a cot in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was also getting sick because Chad fed me raw sausage. So that is like, true. <laughs> Please refrain. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, sorry. <laughs> Chad was cooking sausage in the kitchen and undercooked it. I ate it. Some good old hunting buddies. Got sick. Five years together. I think that's a pretty good spot to end this one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right, folks. That is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and subscribe there as well. And I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. Before we shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.